Good evening, listeners. Good evening, Mike. Good evening, Russ. It's episode 39 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm not feeling particularly mature tonight, but... Why is that? I don't know. No, no reason. Okay. No reason, guess, just not feeling mature. I guess maybe I am. Yeah, it's going to put on some rock and roll. We're going to talk about only rock and roll tonight then, huh? Oh. No, I <laughs> think it's um, it's getting close to uh, Christmas season and you oh. know, the... The youthful that makes you feel immature. <laughs> no, no. The the youthful joy of Christmas was long really? ago displaced with the, you know, adult kind of um, the dread bah of humbug. Yeah, bah humbug of, spirit, Scrooge, yeah. Of yeah. trying to buy presents and spending extra money and all that kind of stuff. You know, so. We 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 picked the no swearing option on this podcast, and it's too bad because I had a good uh, interjection in there that I now can't say because. Yeah, we don't wanna, you can't swear. We don't We're a family our podcast. Clean, our clean rating. Because we know everybody's family is um, gathered around the radio listening to us or whatever you listen to this on. You know, gathered around the device. Gathered around their kerosene stove. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's in Japan only. In Japan, Although, who knows? Pretty soon with the with the new uh, the new uh, clean energy, everybody might be around. It probably won't be kerosene, though. It'll probably be something else. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Kerosene is probably one of the dirtiest kind of fuel. Yeah, I don't want bad, that in my yeah. house. It smells really bad. It smells really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Or the the, the kerosene stove the car, you know, is the kerosene heater, we should say, is a very popular uh, cheap way of heating your house in Japan. Yeah. But not for me. I don't have one of those. Or the kotatsu. Or yeah, I don't like those table. either. Yeah. A listener's not in Japan. and it's um, Most of the modern ones are... Um, electric although they actually used to have charcoal ones um but you put your you, legs you put your legs under the table they'd yeah. be like burning charcoal under there that yeah. seems really odd to me i've never actually seen one of those so your legs get warm but the rest of you freezes so not only that but you have to sit around the table with the rest of your family which would right. drive me crazy <laughs> I just, can i just go somewhere and be alone i want to be warm if you want to be warm you got to stay with the family yeah. It's it's a table with a heating element under it, and it's on it's placed on the floor. So you're sitting on the floor, you know, on the yeah. on the tatami mats in Japan. There are no chairs around those things. Yeah. Okay. Not one of my favorite. Uh, no, Japanese that, culture that, that was one of the uh, one of the uh, one of my least favorite Japanese things. In fact, speaking of least favorites, while we were sorry to hear that uh, Stephen Sondheim died this week. Yes, ninety-one. Um, I think he was ninety-one years old, and he was—he was one—he was one of the great uh, writers of Broadway musicals, and he really just ruled Broadway in the nineteen seventies. Um, he did write probably my least favorite song of all time. In fact, I can't stand this song. Oh, do you know what it is? You want to guess? What? I already told you. You already know. Yeah, I know. I know what, what is it? Is. It's uh, "Send in the Clowns." Ah, oh, I hate that song so much. Yeah. But where I don't like that either. The clouds, get out of here, man! Get out of here with that! I, and yet everybody sings it. It's like a, it's a great song, and it probably is kind of structurally and uh, chordally, and as far as like song construction goes. But I don't know. <laughs> I just don't like it. Well, it's one of those songs that you couldn't escape uh, when you were growing up. You know, back yeah. in the old days when all we had yeah. was radio, right. and when you were in the car or you were at home. You know, and there was no Spotify, and you turned on the radio, you'd get bombarded with those same pop songs over and over again. Right. 
But then again, you did know kind of, you know, you were kind of hit with everybody. One of the good things about that, though, is that everybody shared this sort of um, culture. This is another good thing about TV and movies. One of the things that kind of drives me crazy about uh, young young people in general, really, but young people in Japan is they just don't know anything about, like, movies older than the year 2000 <laughs> you know it's whereas we we saw movies way back to 1930 like you know the original king kong and you know yeah. movies like that on tv casablanca i mean i have who who under 30 has seen this movie and yet Probably we all no we know. we all knew them really all those movies really well they're yeah. classics now you so gotta watch, teach classes on them watch all those robert mitchum movies and right like that yeah. well there My are favorite. some some young people who are checking out older music now and, That's uh, good. Yeah, from the '60s mostly. Things. And now that we're all grown up, we've got adult yeah. music. And, yeah, you know, for you listeners, and it's really happening. As it turns out, jazz is is really happening now, and classical is actually pretty yeah. interesting. They've dug up a lot of old stuff. There's new. There are new composers. You know, we're getting uh, composers from all over the world now. Yeah, it's, right. it's it's really fantastic. And it's only a click away, but it can be overwhelming to decide what to listen to, what not to listen to. So that's why we're here every week bringing you six new recordings in right. classical and jazz, mostly, uh, to give you something new to listen to each week and uh, maybe figure out some new things. If you enjoy listening to us ramble on about our impressions of that. And uh, boy, we've got a wide variety this evening, going way back in time, uh, right up to uh, modern times uh, for this episode 39. Before we get into it, though, uh, I'd like to remind you, listening out there, that in the episode description uh, for all these uh, recordings we'll talk about, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music, so you can uh, check them out on your own. And uh, also at the top of the description, there's a full episode playlist on Deezer, and that has all the recordings uh, in one big list you can listen to. Uh, you can also follow us on Deezer for the podcast at Adult Music Podcast. Uh, you get the podcast and also our playlists from our name there. Now, if you can't see the description with the links on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on, uh, come over and check us out on our host site, Podbean. And everything is neat and tidy uh, to follow over there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you take a minute to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category uh, for music commentary. And that helps more listeners find us. So we'd appreciate it. If you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah. By the way, before we get away from Stephen Sondheim, I, we should say something positive about him. He uh, he did write the lyrics to West Side Story, the, right. the Leonard Bernstein musical, right? Yeah. And uh, he wrote Sweeney Todd, music and uh, lyrics to that, as well as mm -hmm. uh, Company and a lot of other musicals from the 70s. Right. And a lot of great songs. Just, just I don't like Send in the Clouds. I think that's a real, it's a real turkey for me. Up there with, speaking of Thanksgiving, up there with uh, MacArthur Park, another song I really can't stand. Yeah, that's I never understood there. that "cake in the rain" line. I was like, "What's that doing in there?" So very, very strange <laughs> lyrics in that song. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it's a weird, it's a yeah. weird song. 
And it's also got this grandiose music to it. And the, you know, the thing is, the guy that's Jimmy Webb wrote that song. One of America's all-time no, great songwriters. He wrote Wichita Lineman and other songs. Guy who other wrote great songs a lot well. of songs that I like, yeah. Yeah. Which is just that, that one, you know, he mm. kind of... <laughs> Who's that? That's Richard Harris, isn't it? What, MacArthur Park? Yeah, I think it a is. A lot of people sang it. Yeah, but I, I think, think uh, the actor Richard Harris sang that song in the famous recording. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And I used to have a, a really crazy version by Maynard Ferguson, big band, oh, you know, the altissimo trumpet player. Right. Just scream over it. Yeah, so... Yeah, but I haven't heard it in years, and now you've had to remind me of it. I'm going to... Well, you should Stuck put that as a double head. header. Uh, Send in the clowns <laughs> and MacArthur Park. That would uh, torture us both. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's that's something for our things we hate list because we we want to make a um, things there's we love, a, things adult music loves, and things adult music hates list. You know, I, I think there is a a podcast about that. Something like yeah. why this song sucks or songs yeah, there we is. hate or yeah. something. <laughs> that's too negative though. <laughs> I, I couldn't, we, you can make a list, you know, so, but if you're going to, I think it's bad for your spirit to complain about things every week you know, or yeah, every yeah. day, maybe on I a podcast so. and you're putting it out into the world. I don't know, man. I mean, it's a funny idea and yeah. uh, I would, I, I'm sure I'd be amused watching yeah. it but or listening to it but uh, I think it's I think yeah. it's bad too much bad karma yeah music should be edifying and uplifting yeah. so yeah just ignore the stuff you don't like exactly okay. alright alright well anyway before we get to the classical releases I just need to give the listeners a heads up I have switched my adult beverage tonight because a friend gave me an early Christmas present it's a bottle of uh West Cork single malt Irish whiskey finished mm. in a bourbon barrel and uh it's nice and smooth and delicious but it really packs quite a punch this is a 59 proof whiskey so if i suddenly drop out of the conversation in the jazz section of the program that's why <laughs> because i have a lot to say about the jazz recordings this, today <laughs> which are really great so if <laughs> Russ might be doing a solo show by then we we'll right, have to I'll try see. to keep you between the between the lines on yeah. the rails till the end. I'll have to sit sit uh, under the katatsu or something, you know. <laughs> I, I don't have one of those in my house, actually. I just don't like them. They're up there with uh, MacArthur Park. <laughs> and send in the clouds. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, let's get going with tonight's recordings. First of all, I picked a uh, Baroque recording to uh, start out. And um, this one... You know, usually I like to start the day with Baroque music uh, because it's cheerful. Well, <laughs> this one is not cheerful. It's a, it's a vocal one. And that's really the only place you'll ever find, like, really kind of down or sad, um, you know, Baroque uh, pieces. The Baroque opera was really started in the Baroque era. The first operas were really started at the beginning of the Baroque era. And they were all, um, well, these are before that. These are from the Renaissance era. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so before that, but Baroque was all Baroque opera was all about emotions. So you had a lot of like drama, dramatic, and sadness and things like that. Um, the Renaissance, the period before the Baroque, were they were really into like uh, the melancholy. And in fact, this album is called Melancholia uh, with no H. Okay, it's a Spanish word, not the English word. Okay, Melancholia, and this is by Musica Temprana. Uh, Adriana Rodriguez Van der Spol is the artistic director. And I didn't write the label. Who's the label on this? Is this um, Glossa? Who? Pentatone. 
Pentatone. Sorry, boy, yeah. I, got, I got the wrong label. Pentatone didn't mean that. We love you too, Glossa. But um, okay, we'll worry about that later. On the Pentatone label. All right, the um, the booklet note is pretty uh, edifying. They talk about um, uh, the title referring to the melancholy felt at the loss of something important. <laughs> then they say, like one's life, although I don't know why you'd feel melancholy <laughs> about that. I guess you'd be thinking about it in advance, and that would make you melancholy. Um, the the planet and culture, or the absolute, the loss of God, okay, mm -hmm. um, which you actually can never lose. You could just kind of, I guess you could shut yourself off from it, though. Okay, so... It says here, in 1475, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, who we know as Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, united their crowns and unified Spain by doing that. Um, they were also responsible for sending Columbus to the Americas, as we know. And his discoveries began thoughts of the New World in Europe. That's kind of why we celebrate Columbus Day. There's all this kind of stuff about, oh, well, the Vikings really discovered uh, America, or some Chinese guy did. But... Uh, it's Columbus is important because this really started Europeans thinking about it. That's why he's the significant one. Okay. Um, okay. The most important source of music at this time of great change was the Cancioneros Musicales de Palacio and the Cancioneros, or I guess we would say Cancioneros Musicales de la Colombina, which were both around the year 1500. And all of these works come from Either one of those two books, or except for the last one, which comes from several sources. We'll get to that when we talk about it. Okay, so this is a vocal ensemble, and uh, this is kind of a... Uh, melancholy is a good word. This is all really kind of mildly sad music. You know, you could, but if you, you you mostly enjoy this if you light a candle in like a bare room with maybe one writing desk and a cot, and uh, that would be the ideal listening uh, <laughs> environment for this. I like this one a lot, though. I was listening to it almost every morning. I liked it, too. I didn't listen to it every morning, but I liked it, too. Um, but it's just kind of... In the morning, I don't know. I think it would... I need to. I need something to get me out of bed. This would keep me in there, I think, though. It's not depressing by any means. It's well, the, yeah, the, um, the lyrics are very interesting, too. It's a yeah. mix of secular and spiritual things. Right. And um, mm -hmm. I found that... Um, it's sometimes disturbing, disturbingly sad things, but <laughs> it it sort of gives you, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes we think, you know, oh, woe, woe is us with all the things we feel in the modern yeah. times, but it sort of shows you the unchanged nature of man. You know, even exactly. in 1500, people were still having the same emotions uh, and expressing them through these kind of songs. So uh, I found that, uh, very interesting, and then we get to look at a lot of Spanish, which we don't yeah. do a lot. So that was interesting too. Right. Now I was thinking we should do this on. We're, we're planning a Spanish episode in the future, and this would have been a good thing to have on that. But I think I wanted to do it because it was getting the months were passing, and I just wanted to get it on the show because right. I liked it. Okay. Well, anyway, one of the things about this is listening to. Well, I'll mention this at the end. I wrote a little note about it. Okay, let's go through the tracks here. We have, let's see, 14, no, oh, more than that. We have 22 tracks, but really uh, 17 pieces. The last one is a multi, uh, it says that it's a multi-part work, but it's really just one very long work. Anyway, 
So you have 16 very, sh well, not very short, but one movement, one, you know, there's songs basically. And then there's a long, almost religious setting at the end. Anyway, we start out with an anonymous composer writing a piece called A Los Baños de Amor, Del Amor, To the Baths of Love. Oh, Okay, this is a uh, mournful, that's a good word for this whole album, really. Long, drawn-out, vibratoless strings and winds on this. So uh, you're not going to get any vibrato because uh, we're too depressed to to actually make the string feel like it's alive. Um, it's got a good mix, good arrangement, and gorgeous sound on this whole album. This is a really good-sounding mm -hmm. album. Do you think so? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, in the song here, the singer is going to the baths to cleanse himself of misfortune in love. Just wash it off you. Uh, this theme of love as a mortal wound is uh, very popular. Uh, it's heard in a lot of later Italian works. And being Italian-American, <laughs> who is someone who's very interested in this whole era of Italian works, I know this this whole sentiment well. And I think in all Latin culture, this kind of registers like this. Love is a mortal wound. Okay? You've, you've, you've injured me, and I'm thrilled about it. You know, this kind of thing. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's, it's kind of the theme of these songs. Okay, f number two, Francisco de la Torre, uh, Dime Triste Corazón, Tell Me, Saddened Heart. This is a chorale work, and it kind of sounds like a madrigal. Uh, it's sung in harmony. There's no counterpoint. It's all kind of like chords. And here the vocals claim that the lover is being served, that the lover being served is actually an enemy. You got to listen to the lyrics to understand. I'm not going to pick this apart um one of the things about this album that's really interesting is that the program the, these works are all just songs they're just written you, you know the uh, chords the notes the melody and that's it you don't know the instrumentation so you could really use any instrumentation you want uh from the period and this ensemble varies the instrumentation in each track in a way that makes it constantly interesting to the ear um so this one's a choral work. It sounds like a chorale, really, like a church work. The third piece, Anonymous, Oyos, Mis Oyos, and this has a vihuela accompaniment. It means eyes, my eyes. Vihuela accompaniment. Uh, this one's actually kind of uplifting. It has an identifiable Spanish lilt to the melody. In this one, the uh, singer marvels at her lover's eyes in the lyrics. So that's kind of nice. The work has a spare, still quality, and there's lots of space. And it ends very suddenly, too. I was kind of like, that's it? Mm. I don't know. Not a final chord. Fourth um, track, and also an anonymous composer, En Avila Mis Hoyos. En Avila, Eyes of Mind. Uh, this has a plucked string and wind instrument as accompaniment. Uh, the singer recalls seeing a friend murdered. <laughs> Mm. As do we all, I guess. I don't know. Melancholy indeed. <laughs> There's a light feeling of despair in this work. It starts with a solo voice. Then a gentle chorus comes in to assist. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> do you think we have it bad, huh? I don't know. Anyway, Adrian Rodriguez van der Spohl, he's the uh, conductor. So he's uh, written this work for this um, this uh, album. And his work is called Melancholia, which is the name of the um, album. Um, this is an instrumental, and it's the first of two he's composed for the album. It matches the style of the period, but the harmony suggests something later than the music that we're hearing on this album. Uh, this one has a plucked string instrument playing upward arpeggiated chords, as other instruments play long, drawn-out tones. 
and also has an inconclusive ending. So I feel like he's kind of copying the style, but he's still he's a little ahead of uh, this period. I think it sounds more I don't know Renaissance if not modern. I don't know. Mm. Uh, track six, Garcia Munoz, Munoz, Garcia Munoz, Garcia Munoz, Una Montaña Pasando. Uh, and there's an instrument called the Saranica on this. Um, this is The title means When We Pass Through the Mountains. Uh, the chorus sings of the coming of a farm girl, coming upon a farm girl. So they're like a group of people, and they come on a farm girl, singing about how the cow herd avoids her, and she may not see him again because the mountains are difficult to cross. There's a lovely vocal solo on this, and I'm guessing this is uh, Luciana Cueto, uh, the album's mezzo-soprano soloist. She gets all the, I think she gets all of the solo uh, uh, singing on this album. Uh, the choruses travel further and come upon another girl, grief-stricken, because she doesn't want to marry. So she's sad is so, because she's sad at being rejected, so she's never going to get married. So everybody's sad just for whatever reason. I and mean, I guess one, if you got married, you'd be sad too, so... I guess the the moral of the story is there's no avoiding sadness. It just can't win. Just can't win. Okay, next track seven, Juan Ponce, Alia se me ponga el sol, let the sun set. This starts with the vihuela. I love this instrument. It's a really kind of gentle sounding um, mm. lute like instrument. Uh, and then there are vibratoless strings accompanying very soon. A solo v- vocalist, who is Cueto, again, Luciano Cueto, um, sings of pain and resentment at rejection. Hmm. Track eight, anonymous composer, Dentro en el Vergel, uh, Atre. This is an instrumental, and it's got a vihuela, strings, and winds. Also, an inconclusive ending. It just sort of suddenly stops. Track nine, uh, muchos van de amor heridos. Many have been hurt by love. Actually, I, you know, I don't actually speak Spanish, so if I'm mispronouncing these words, I'm, I'm going by what I understand about it. So please forgive me <laughs> if that's the case. This is a choral work with chords. There's no real um, counterpoint in this. Um, counterpoint was was developing, but it wasn't quite at its. Um, well, it was actually the Renaissance Love, but it was reserved mostly for those big masses. These are more popular works. Yeah, these Next, are songs, um, really. I mean, they yeah, come off songs. as songs, yeah. Yeah. Track 10, Mojica, CMP. Uh, no coreando suas querida, even if you don't love me. Uh, a, the, the, the lyric is basically about how the singer still loves the person he's singing to so much that he's happy in his suffering. Yeah, this is such a Latin sentiment, and, partic- <laughs> and I know it's an Italian one for sure, but apparently a Spanish one and probably a, a Latin one as well. I think it started with the troubadours because they were always happy about suffering for their love for their the woman, their women. Um, Pedro de Escobar, Hoyos Morenicos, which means dark eyes. This poor woman has surrendered to his love. This poor woman has surrendered to her love. And now his eyes want to kill her. <laughs> the chorus joins in midway. <laughs> <laughs> They're great lyrics, really. Yeah, They're just I, kind of. Uh, I really like reading just, the lyrics. You have to kind of adjust your uh, your uh, sense of reality to a different period here. Okay, anonymous uh, dentro en vergel, which means in the orchard. Vergel. I don't know how to say this. Vergel. A cuatro. Uh, instrumental and a particular. L- 
lovely one here. This is led by a recorder and, and another instrument I really enjoy listening to, especially in this context. Next is by Juan Ponce. We've heard about him from him already. Como esta sola mi vida? How lonely my life is. And this is a choral work. Going on, Garci Sanchez de Badayos. And this this is um, called O Desdicado de Mi, which is Woe is Me. Another choral work, uh, another being whose love is unrequited. If I don't explain what the piece is about, just imagine it's someone whose love is unrequited, because that's basically what all these tracks are about. Almost all. Track 15, Adrian Rodriguez van der Spol, again, the um, uh, director. This is called Dystopia, and it's an instrumental work. This sounds like a Renaissance guitar at the opening. Who I think he's playing it, too. Uh, there's a Renaissance harp as well. It's melancholy in keeping with the theme, but the timbre is, is brighter here. And it also speaks of later times. I think uh, van der Spol's uh, harmony really is... He, he's really past the uh this um early renaissance era he's kind of into the the later renaissance or the even the baroque era with his harmony when he's trying to copy the style uh track six, no problem with that it just kind of feels a little different is the thing but it but it lifts the mood a bit johannes urede is next muy turista será será mi vida my life will be miserable <laughs> <laughs> Hey, play it. My life will be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> Make a request. Send in the clock. <laughs> okay. And of course, his life will be miserable because um, he won't see his lover anymore. Track. <laughs> Send in the clouds. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Anonymous composer, Santo Domingo de Silos. Um, this is um, from a different source. This is from the Toledo Cadral Codice 25. Um, this is um, El Canto de la Sibila versus Sibila Profete, um, and the Sibila is Luciana Cueto. Um, this is a, it's presented here in six parts, but it's really one continuous, almost 30 minute work. And it's religious, so it's it kind of balances out the secular works on the um, album. Uh, in this one, um, the female voice, Luciana Cueto, who is the Sibyl, uh, promises to teach. Um, this group of, uh, I guess, priests singing a Gregorian chant, um, how God manifests himself. And the whole thing talks about, this whole 30 minutes talks about the last judgment. The Sibyl tells um, tells the priest how it will occur. And the parts all continue up until the end. Um, there are also bells, as though it's a kind of church service. You know, there are bells rung at certain div divisions in the... Uh, in the work. The music sounds like something you would hear at church in this period. This is a very quiet, very tranquil album. Good, It's it's very meditative, let's say. Mm -hmm. I needed to turn the volume up for this, actually. It's it's that quiet. It's all gentle lamentations. Uh, they're sad, but not pathetically so, at least musically speaking. <laughs> the lyrics can get kind of pathetic at times. Uh, keep in mind, despite the timbre variety between the tracks, the tone of the album is all the same. It's all sort of down. Uh, the album's a downer, but not depressing. It doesn't. It, it's actually rather touchingly beautiful. Uh, the sound was of an individual isolated in a spacious bare cell, like a monk meditating on misfortune, and I love that sound. So I really enjoyed this album too. All this misery cheered me up. I felt better <laughs> listening to this album. By the end, I was <laughs> uplifted. The overall sound and programming made me overjoyed to hear all this misery. 
And that's what I have to say about it. Anyway, I, what, what I'm trying to say is I recommend this. So if it sounds kind of compelling to you, give it a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. It's really nice. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I wrote meditative too. I said all the music has a calming meditative quality. Uh, something about music from this period, you know, pre-Baroque, the harmonies are very simple. They're rather open right. and they don't, right. they don't take huge jumps. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they, they have a, a simple quality and the way they resonate um, along with the, you know, you can look at the lyrics, uh, both the religious and uh, secular ones are interesting, um, but uh, it sort of gives you a human kind of tie to um, the emotions uh, that go along with the lyrics. And um, as Mike said, the, the music is really cohesive, uh, over this, there's enough variety, but the overall mood and style, um, you know, keeps you on this same general kind of uh, journey through a little bit of sadness, but uh, it's not a downer at all. Uh, yeah, it really will um, calm you down. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot, and uh, I think it's an yeah. interesting listen. It's one of those odd things where they say, you know, like the blues, which is kind of always really sad music, but you just feel good when you hear it, right? It just kind of, it kind of purges you of something. Yeah. Uh, this music does that too. I felt really good. At the, I felt like light by the end of this, uh, listening to this mm -hmm. recording. And, and also it's an easy listen all the way through simply because of the variety of uh, timbral um, combinations that the, uh, the ensemble uses. It was really cr very creatively done. Excellent. I liked it a lot. On the Pentatone label, Melancholia. Okay. Second, I had, um, I've been holding, I've been sitting on this for a while, wondering if I wanted to do it or not. The British Project. And this is by the uh, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, or I should say Birmingham, because we might have British listeners now. The City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Mirga Grajinte Tila. And she's, um, uh, she uh, is an up-and-coming uh, conductor from Lithuania, and she made a big splash with her recording of um, Mishislav Weinberg's Symphonies 2 and 21 about two years ago. Um, she really kind of was the first uh, recording to put um, Weinberg's music on the map, and now he's become like a very, very popular. There are a lot of recordings of his music suddenly coming out. He was a Polish composer from the 20th century. And uh, so she's gone on. She's done other... Um, uh, recordings, but this is the first time she's doing works that are firmly in the repertoire or have been for a while. It's all now she's conducting the uh, Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, so and she's Lithuanian, so she's um, decided to do an album of music for her new home, where cause she's now because she's now in Britain, and she says she loves British music, as do yeah, I do to an extent. We'll you know we'll get more into that here. So what she's done is the program is um, two one-movement works on the ends by two older 20th century composers, Elgar and Vaughn Williams. And they're kind of the bread in the uh, sandwich that uh, has um, multi-movement works by contemporaries Benjamin Britten and William Walton, um, who, who lived really in the mid-20th century or the early, you know, through the war years and, and all that. Anyway, the program starts with a work by Elgar um, called Sospiri, his Opus 7. It's an adagio for string orchestra, harp or piano, and harmonium or organ. 
ad libitum in D minor. This is written in 1914 at the beginning of World War One, and it was premiered after Britain entered the First World War. So audiences, expe- audiences expected something patriotic, and instead they got this. It's it's a short <laughs> uh, <laughs> four minutes fifty seconds, uh, passionate cry of desolation and loss. As Richard Bratby said, describes it in, in the booklet note, in the uh, the Deutsche Grammophon booklet note, I should mention this is a Deutsche Grammophon release. I didn't write the record labels on my on my uh, program notes. This is terrible. I got to remember to do that because we want them on board. They're important. They put this music out. Deutsche Grammophon album label of the year. Remember, in uh, according to Grammophon, and um, the recording is spacious and warm, and the strings ring out in the higher tessitura. And the harp and harmonium register clearly in their softer passages. This is a beautiful recording. It's uh, very, very clear. Like the the big ensemble is easily, um, well, everything in the ensemble is audible. Okay, tracks two, two through four are the Symphonia da Requiem by Benjamin Britten. This this had, this work has an interesting story. Actually, did you read about this? Do, do uh, you know no, how this I did came not. about? Ah, you're going to love this. It's a symphony for the large orchestra written in 1940. Okay, so there you go. World War II had started in 1939. It was written in 1940 as a commission for the Japanese government's celebration of the 2600th anniversary of the Chrysanthemum Throne, which started with Emperor Jimmu. Uh, The the government of Japan... Now, you got to remember, they... Japan hadn't fully entered the war yet, but they were already um, causing trouble in China at the time. And um, so people were aware that they were being a bit, uh, shall we say, aggressive there. Um, The government, um, they also commissioned works from some other uh, famous composers of the day. Uh, They were really into Western classical music at the time. And there were a lot of Japanese composers that were um, commissioned for this. And some of the foreign ones were Richard Strauss, and uh, Jacques Bear, and I don't know of any others, but those are the two I came up with. Um, the, the, they didn't mention which work Strauss uh, wrote for them, but Jacques Bear's work is the uh, Symphonie du Fête or something like that. It's something I've never heard, but it's said to be fairly bombastic, probably what the uh, Japanese government wanted. Well, when the government, the Japanese government received this work, um, they complained that it, quote, did not express felicitations for the 2600th anniversary of our country. <laughs> so they didn't play it. They didn't oh. like the fact that it was first of all it was a requiem, so uh so kind of a mass for the dead. And also the three movements were written after the uh the Christian mass or the Catholic mass which really had nothing to do with them. So they were thoroughly unhappy <laughs> with this. Uh it eventually received its premiere in New York in the USA the next year, 1941, I believe. Okay. So this was a pacifist message aimed at the Japanese government who were already being belligerent, not only in China, but in Asia in general. And it actually forecasts some material that would be used in the War Requiem of 1962, one of Britain's major works. Uh, the whole thing started with the death of Britain's mother, and uh, so he was feeling the uh, remorse of that. And at the time, news of the Spanish Civil War and the rapidly escalating beginning of the Second World War were in the air. So uh, the work arose from all of that. So it was both personal and it kind of expanded into the whole world situation. The first movement, Lacrimosa, and all these kind of attached to each other, these three movements, they're all played as one continuous thing. Um, again, all the titles come from the uh, the Latin Requiem Mass, the um, the Roman Catholic Latin, Latin Mass. 
possibly even the Church of England one. I'm not sure how that goes. Uh, it starts with a percussive outburst, and then it grows very mournful. And this is the longest movement at 9 minutes and 29 seconds. Um, I got to say, the conductor, Garjinta Tila, I got to say, how many times do I have to say this name? It's kind of hard <laughs> to say. <laughs> um, it holds the tension of this movement well, allowing the material to register as structural as well as local. So I was very impressed with her conducting in this and in the Elgar work. Uh, the movement builds up to a loud and intense climax. Uh, there's also a lament by the saxophone, very unusual scoring in this uh, movement. The second movement, Dies Ire. Oh, who's not going to set a Dies Ire when they do a Requiem? This is the uh, Dies Ire, I mean, the Day of Wrath. Usually a very dramatic movement. Just think of the Verdi Requiem if you really want to hear a solid you know, Latin <laughs> Mediterranean Dies Ire. Um, this particular one starts with agitation in the strings. It's not very uh, bombastic. Often they can be. Uh, the tempo speeds up as the strings set a galloping rhythm uh, over squeals from various brass instruments and harsh wind combinations. Um, of course, in a Dies Irae, they have to be trumpets, and there's some impressive repeated note figuration in this. Uh, the brass are also called on to indicate the harshness of the Last Judgment, and we then hear the sound of a rapid march in the strings. Uh, all in all, this is more of an intentionally intentionally vulgar uh, rather than a traditionally awe-inspiring movement. Right? It's, it's the, kind of the, the yeah. yeah that giddy up thing in the strings is pretty interesting. Giddy yeah. up, giddy up, giddy up, <laughs> galloping. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, mm-hmm. I guess. And the third movement, Requiem Eternum. We finally get some rest. Uh, eternal rest, Requiem Eternum. This starts quietly and peacefully with a rocking melody in the winds, which builds to a sun-drenched climax midway through. It's as though God has intervened and stopped the carnage or brought us into a, a place of peace. It's actually a moving work, and Karajinta uh, Tila paces it expertly. So she's really, um, as a conductor, she's, she's really um, at her peak here. Um, the next... Uh, work is uh, by William Walton. It's excerpts from um, the opera. It's kind of a symphonic suite from his opera, Troilus and Cressida, composed from 1947 to 1954. Now, he didn't... Walton himself didn't arrange this um, suite. It's arranged by his uh, collaborator, Christopher Palmer, and he did it in 1988. And I've got to say, I I really would have preferred if Walton had done it himself, because I'm not so sure about the the choices here. I I thought this was kind of prosaic sound. It didn't really build to anything. Anyway, the first movement, Prelude and Seascape, is the beginning of the opera, the Trojans. It opens with a massed invocation to Athena, and then evokes the birth of Aphrodite from the sea, which starts about two minutes in, and ends with some glittering orchestration. Um, The scherzo uses music of the quick-witted Pandarus. Uh, This characterization probably comes from stories about him from the Middle Ages, because in the Iliad, uh, Pandarus is a heroic warrior, and in Shakespeare's play, Troilus and Cressida, he's an object of ridicule, so he, here he lands somewhere in between. Um, the music here is kind of light. It it kind of gives you a lightness in his approach to life. Um, Cressida's aria from the opera at the haunted end of the day is used as a central interlude. It's much slower. It floats along at a slower pace, and it's a sad lament. And the movement lights up as Pandarus's material is reintroduced after the music for Cressida's aria. So it's an ABA form. Third movement, The Lovers, portrays Troilus and Cressida's doomed love. 
and it starts with a dramatic statement, then quiets. There's a dancey rhythm in the middle, but all these happy moments darken to a doom-laden stasis in the end, <laughs> although it ends rather tranquilly. And finally, the fourth movement, our, our lovers are, of course, doomed. This moves from the captive Cressida's anguished lament to the opera's denouement. And uh, it begins in a dark, quiet rumbling in the strings and timpani as an English horn plays Cressida's plaintive melody. There's an aggressive march, then we get another lament, and then we get the dramatic concluding music of the opera. The thing is, I didn't think this suite really worked as a piece, and that's why I kind of wish that Walton himself had uh, arranged it, because he probably would have known you know, more how to pace the... Uh, well, the tension and release in it. It just sounds like it's excerpts from the opera, basically, just uh, to me. Um, it, it, Yeah, it's heavy on Cressida's material, too. Troilus doesn't even make an appearance here. I don't know what's going on <laughs> with that either. Anyway, the, one of the reasons I wanted to hear this was for the last piece. Vaughn Williams is fantastic, absolutely must-hear, Fantasia on the theme of Thomas Tallis. Now, if you haven't heard this work before, I would recommend John Barbaroli's very old recording. Uh, that's still the best ever. I've heard other good ones, too. Uh, this one, I got to say, I didn't like as much. Um, it's to, the, to me, this piece is worth the price of admission on any recording. Um, Grazinta Tila emphasizes the melody wherever it appears. The recording is clear, so the accompaniment can be discerned. There were some interesting balances that I actually really enjoyed quite a bit. And there's a bit of passionate fire in this particular performance. It has a sense of urgency you don't often hear in it, and I was kind of thrilled about that. But I'm not sure it's appropriate to this work. I think this work is more somber in its proper character than it comes across here. I wouldn't say it's overdone, but I do think that the, uh, well, first of all, the dynamic range between loud and quiet is very wide, so you don't want to adjust your uh, stereo volume by the opening, because uh, you'll be pinned to the back wall uh, by the middle. You'll rarely hear such a depth of, you know, string sound yeah. as you'll hear on this. Uh, the I mean, the arranging that yeah. Williams has done with, you know, the strings it's like it's a huge wall of sound in a very good way um right you know you'll in the, especially in the lower strings uh that uh, oh, basically this work is all strings I right mean, yeah it's all strings and yeah, it's, they're divided into three groups there's a string quartet right. actually in the center right. which is the smallest group but in the um the sections uh the um the it's just very impressive of the um, the density of the you know the parts as they move with you know the different layers of, of the strings. Uh, I was pretty impressed by you know that. Yeah. I mean, there are um, as you say, there are individual string lines and things too. But in in the orchestra score, uh, is really something special in this work. I think. Yeah, at the uh, beginning, I had a sense that the tempo was going a bit fast. And once we got to the string quartet, which is the, really just this the most beautiful part of the whole piece, right in the middle, um, I thought they were playing a bit too fast, too, because it's a really moving section. And I wasn't moved by it. So I was ah, it's just because it's too fast. They're not really letting me, letting the feeling sink in before going on to the next uh, part. And then... Um, they lose the somber ancient sounding quality of this work and it's part of that that gives it its kind of sense of wonder um 
tempo is extremely important in this work. From there, uh, Grashinta Tila keeps the uh, that tempo going to the end, and by the time we get to the big uh, loud climax of the uh, those those kind of parallel chords, um, the figuration gets blurred due to the fast tempo, and I feel like the climaxes are mistimed. Like they don't really just feel like that big release that you get that just makes me feel so good when I heard this. Um, the uplift I usually get from this piece just didn't happen. And um, at the end, when we pass the climax, the arabesque-like accompaniment is accentuated, accentuated against the main melody, which is a welcome touch. I liked that a lot. But I feel like uh, the uh, the timing of the whole thing, you know, if, you, if you're telling a joke, timing is everything. Well, if you really want to give the audience like a big kind of, you know, feeling you gotta time you gotta kind of pace the piece perfectly and i, I feel like this one kind of climax too early shall we say um mm. i was fortunate enough to hear this piece uh, for the first time at a live performance at the sanders theater at harvard university and it was magical um really unforgettable i enjoyed that a lot i'm trying to remember who conducted it uh, I don't remember. Anyway, it was a long time ago. Hmm. I I really enjoyed this performance. Uh, I did feel sometimes, like you said, that it, in some places it was a bit rushed and could yeah. have been just uh, set on and uh, sort of unhurried in some of the phrasing. But um, the mainly the re the recording and uh, the scoring, the blends of the strings is really. Uh, what drew me into this uh yeah. a lot, so it's a beautiful recording yeah and the britain is really beautifully done i like that a lot mm -hmm. i just kind of felt like the, the whole second half of the program was kind of lackluster mm -hmm. i don't know because i felt like there weren't any real climaxes in the walton either because it didn't really build to anything and I, I just kind of i was a little disappointed by that and i don't blame walton for it i blame his uh his um arranger because <laughs> yeah. he chose the, the I'm sure the opera itself plays really well I, I enjoyed the Walton but I felt like mm. it was a, you know it's a journey of little episodes I thought rather right, than a yeah. cohesive That's, thing so th that was my problem with the, it yeah the orchestration of it is is kind of uh, fun there's a lot of variety of timbres and moods and rhythms but the arc mm. of the composition I felt you know, like you say, it's sort of uh, cut and paste with different uh, little scenes and things. So, um, yeah. not that it's not fun to listen to, but yeah. So this 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 album, I think it's it's beautifully recorded, and for fans of the conductor, I think you should hear it. Um, if you're like me, interested in the Vaughn Williams piece, um, I'd, I'd look elsewhere. There are other good recordings of it. The Barbaroli, though, it's very old, so it's not as in as beautiful sound. But it still sounds really great. And hear it live if you can, because that was a magical performance that I heard. I, was really, I really went floating home that night. I remember it really well. This instantly became one of my favorite pieces. Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis, for those of you, by Ralph Vaughan, Rafe Vaughan Williams, I guess we should say. Um, there you go. Okay, now, our next and last one was a fascinating release. Um, by the Quatuor Eben, a French um, uh, string quartet. And this is called Round Midnight after the Thelonious Monk piece or song. 
And uh, it's a theme of all um, night-oriented music. And the label, again, I- I'm not even going to guess. Who is this? I don't know. Erato. Erato. I thought it was Erato. Okay. I was going to say it was Erato, but I didn't want to be wrong again. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't write them down this year, so my apologies to the record labels. I'll never work in this field, will I? All right. The Erato label. Erato, by the way, has put out... They were, I think, label of the year last year or recently, uh, and uh, they've been putting out just pretty spectacular recordings all year long, too. I've been thrilled by them, by Deutsche Gramophone, by Alpha, and as always, by Hyperion. I really like them a lot. Okay, so we have, in this interesting program, um, a work by Henri Dutilleux, um, Ainsi la Nuit, Ainsi la Nuit, for String Quartet. Um, this is a uh, string quartet. I think it was written in 1976, and uh, it's the only string quartet due to you wrote, and it's it's a it's considered to be a great work, and I've been fascinated by it forever. I still don't really get it because it's it's kind of a hard work to grasp. It's sort of one of these works that it, it all the event musical events in it. It's it's it happens so fast and slip by and move on to the next thing so fast that you're really not really sure what's happening and it doesn't really give you any melodies to uh, grab onto either it's mostly as as is the case with um most french composers timbres and in this case you only have string timbres to work with but he winds up coming up with a lot of really interesting sounds in this work okay the last work on the disc is schoenberg's verklärte nacht in its um uh arranged well it was arranged for string orchestra and that's really the famous version, but this is the original string sex, sextet version and on this one. And in the middle, the cellist for the Quator Eben, Raphael Merlin, has written a piece called Night Bridge, which acts as sort of a bridge between the two works in a concert performance. So they've recorded uh, this program as they performed it in concert. It's not a live performance. It was recorded in the studio. But they've duplicated the... Uh, the, the program that they actually played this in. And boy, is it interesting. I liked this a lot. Anyway, let's go through it. Um, it's it's a bit intellectual, though, I have to say. It's, so if you're kind of uh, someone who wants to kick back and listen to uh, some classical music, uh, this probably isn't for you. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if if you need a little intellectual stimulation, I, this is a fantastic program. I think it's worth doing the work for um, to, to, to listen. Anyway... Ainsi la nuit is a line from a Charles Baudelaire poem, uh, and all of the um, movement names in this um, string quartet come from Baudelaire poems. So it's sort of a uh, tribute to Baudelaire. Um, this, intellectually, this uh, piece is composed at a very high level. One of the influences for this is uh, Beethoven, and one of the things Beethoven did, one of the reasons Beethoven is such a great composer, is because he was able to generate entire four-movement works from a single motif. Think of the Fifth Symphony. Da, 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 like the whole first movement is just built up from those four notes. Um, due to you here kind of takes that to a more modern uh, place. He, he opens with this... Um, chord it's a hexachord it's like six um notes and you hear it kind of fade in sort of in this slight crescendo and then it kind of goes and that's the basis for this entire 20 minute work um you can notice it 
in the beginning as the uh, first nocturne begins. But once all these sort of melodic figures and pizzicati and sul ponticello and all these other sounds that he uh, throws into the mix come on, you kind of lose track of it. And so uh, it's to this day, I still can't really follow this all the way through. Although I thought this might have been the best performance of this work I've ever heard because it's just so well articulated. It's, it's, um, everything is very clear. The volume, again, is at a very high level. So you might need to turn your uh, stereo down. Um, although the, um, the opening, very quiet opening comes out fairly loud here on this recording not in the performance i mean they rec- you know it's just the recording um the first chords um yeah this is a, a hot recording i i noted um this quiet but non-melodic piece registers intensely all the way through um because of the hot recording i think and because of the performance of course um okay the way this is done there's an introduction and then there's the first movement which is called nocturne one um, the, the intro is only 32 seconds long, and then the nocturne begins. Very atmospheric, with the accompanying long tones in the bass perfectly audible. Not always the case in recordings. Uh, it's a bit fast, but in this case, that adds to the drama, and this ensemble is able to keep that pace, so it works very well. Um, we hear something like a melody at around the minute and 30 seconds, but it quickly dissipates, as does everything in this work. It's very quick silver, like any new idea comes and it just kind of it just kind of it's like it's eluding your grasp and it just disappears forever sort of like a haiku i guess you could say where you're supposed to just grasp the feelings that flies by think of that william blake poem uh sunrise right um um he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise i think there's a bit of that quality in this work um, there are all kinds of intriguing sounds from the instruments, too. Pizzicati, there are harmonics. Like I said, sul ponticello, which means you're playing, be- with, you're putting the bow, you're bowing behind the bridge, and it gives like a, this eerie, ghostly sort of sound. Uh, we're hearing all of this, often in, uh, in different combinations. All right, the next um, part is called parenthes one. It's a parenthesis, and this recalls previous material and looks forward to the upcoming material. These uh, sections are all very brief, so it's sort of like a, a little pause between where one, I guess, one's thoughts are collected, or the whoever the protagonist is here. Then we get the second movement, Miroir d'espace, the mirror of space. This starts dramatically and features a stratospheric violin line accompanied by a low cello line, a very nice effect. Okay, all kinds of interesting combinations in this. Then we get parenthèse de, the second parenthesis. Again, very brief, and we hear the stratospheric violin, recalling what we just heard, with the other violin playing pizzi like a knocking sound. It's kind of a really cool effect. Then the music swoops downward and plays a swirling melody, which I don't think we hear again, really. I was listening for that. Third movement, litanies. Slashing figure in the quartet stands out. It repeats twice and comes back in quieter form as the movement goes on. Um, there are lots of pizzicati in this. It kind of sounds like uh, someone's making popcorn. There's <laughs> just so much of it. Uh, afterwards, there are some eerie sul ponticello sounds, and pizzicati are very heavy in this movement. The uh, seventh track, they, they've divided like every section of this into another track. They're all very short. Then we get the parenthèse trois, 
the third parenthesis, a little longer than the other two at 48 seconds, and this one has the pizzicati and the harmon string harmonics played together. Fourth movement, Litany's Du. This one is dark with long drawn out tones and pizzicati punctuation. So they just kind of come in at certain points. We hear some sul ponticello runs. So the, the bow is on the behind the bridge as the uh, fingers run up the uh, neck of the violin. Um, it's very eerie sounding. Afterward, we get contrasting loud scattered chords. And this ends with an upward quiet glissando. And then we get the echo of that in the parenthesis. Quatre. This is a long glissandi chords moving upwards. It's brief in the last of the parenthesis movements. Well, they're not movements, sections. The fifth movement is numbered with a Roman numeral five. Constella constellation. Constellations. Pizzicato and slashing strokes. Um, a minute and 32 seconds. And this is real quick silver material too. It just vanishes as soon as you kind of, it registers in your ear. The sixth movement, Nocturne du skittering repeated note figures then arpeggios with a brief pedal point bed the arpeggi continue in a kind of chaos and this is a very brief track at 55 seconds and then finally the seventh and final movement top suspendu we hear the opening chords again crescendo followed by brief quiet stroke okay but this time it continues differently so we, we've gotten back to the beginning again here we're being reminded of what we heard at the beginning it continues differently. We hear a lot of familiar material juxtaposed over other familiar material in this movement. And the opening chord ends the work with this bouncing decrescendo on the same chord. It's really interesting. So you know there's a high intellect at work in this piece. Now, it's kind of hard to follow. Um, it, re it repays repeated listenings. I've been listening to this for years. I would love to read a book on it so I could really just nail down what's happening in it. Because it's just hard to grab. But I feel like it's been very rewarding already. This particular yeah, was, performance. Go ahead. I was. Uh, I I find it kind of interesting. <clears throat> yeah. I the the especially the percussive like pizzicato is kind of a very interesting effect used, uh, and some of the the trilling gets like an insect like quality yeah. to it almost. Twentieth um, century composers like insects. I don't know. Uh, as you say, it's ethereal. Um, just when you sort of think you know what they're doing or where it's going it's vaporized in onto something mm. else but but I, I have a feeling it's uh, probably for string players this is a absolute must listen uh, yeah. as far as you know techniques and uh, interesting ideas but I have a feeling that from my perspective it's probably a lot more <laughs> fun to play than it is to listen to <laughs> like if I, I was know, a I think... string player I'd want to try this but uh, yeah yeah, I don't know. I think it's fun to listen to if you're kind of, if you know what's happening. Because I remember when I first heard this work, I was like, you know, what, what, you know I didn't have any idea what was going on. Mm. But over the years, as, it, as you hear, this, this happens with music. You hear it again and again, and you sort of start to become familiar with it. Even so, I mean, I still don't really get this, but I do like hearing it. So something is registering for me in it. Mm. I know that it's, I've read, I know what I've read about it tells me it's like got a lot of like this, these real intellectual kind of structural connections in it that I'm just not picking up because they just go by so fast, um, which is why I'd love to read a book on it. This particular performance, though, was different than other performances I've heard of this due to its clarity and dynamics. And for that reason, I think it's the best performance of this work I've heard. It's the one that really grabbed me the most. But that could be because I'm a little familiar with this work now and hearing it 
played like this kind of um, drew me in further. So I was a little, yeah, I was a little more open-minded towards um, approaching it. I, I want to say to anyone who's like afraid of 20th century music, this it's 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 a difficult, intellectually difficult work, but it's not off-putting and um, you know just horrible sounding. It's it's actually pretty compelling I think but it's just not what you'd ordinarily think of when you think of um, classical music I guess unless you're familiar with 20th century music I think it's kind of Give playful actually in over, yeah. in its overall approach to it so um. yeah now the next piece this is this is the centerpiece of the disc and for me uh, it's well I don't want to say it's the most interesting it's the most interesting because it's new um, Raphael Merlin who was the cellist for the uh, Cator Eben uh, wrote this piece called Night Bridge. Um, he's he's credited as the composer. Maybe he wrote it all down, but it seems to be an ensemble effort. And the booklet seems to s claim that they all did this. I guess he's took the responsibility for uh, actually composing it for everybody. Well, they where they gave him the ideas. I'm not sure, but anyway. For some reason, <laughs> this uses uh, three jazz tunes um, to uh, connect the Ainsi la Nuit um, night piece by Dutilleux with Verklette Nacht, the transfigured night work of Schoenberg. Um, and he uses the structure of, um, or they use the structure of um, Ainsi la Nuit to put this across. There are the parenthèses sections mm. and that sort of thing. Um, it starts with an introduction, as does Ainsi la Nuit, and it mimics uh, that work in its form. There are like opening cello notes that kind of are supposed to, I guess, serve as the theme, just like the opening chord serves as the uh, material for the Ainsi la Nuit. Uh, very brief, and apparently this one tone will form a basis. The um, second movement is called On Moon River, and it's the Moon River is pretty much unidentifiable in this particular movement. It sounds a lot like the Ainsi la Nuit material. Then we get Parenthèse 1, and then we get On Moon River 2, or 2, I guess. Uh, this apparently includes material taken from Verklette Nacht in it, with the Schoenberg piece. And we finally hear the melody of Moon River clearly stated. It emerges from the more extract material like a shadow in the night, and then vanishes into chromaticism. It's very cleverly uh, done. It's sort of like forms before your ears, and then it just sort of evaporates somehow. The fifth movement, parenthèse de. Now they've actually numbered these all in Roman numerals as separate movements, which is not the case with Ainsi la Nuit. Um, something feels like it's forming here. It's like a block of marble that hasn't yet exposed the art it will become. The sixth movement goes to On Night and Day, the famous jazz tune. Uh, the bows press hard on the instruments to imitate the sound of an antique gramophone in this one. It's really a clever sound, something you ordinarily won't hear from a string quartet. Um, the sound actually sounds like an old record, without the static, of course. Um, and a pizzicato section follows. Uh, the seventh movement, parenthèse trois, more due to you like material here, with ideas quickly coming and going before they can register. Track 20. We're already up to track 20. Movement 8. On Stella by Starlight. <laughs> I always laugh when I read this because I remember John Lurie's piece, Bella, Bella by, by Barlight, Bar yes, which, yes. so, <laughs> which is so evocative. Mm. <laughs> anyway, check that out. The Kronos Quartet recorded it. Bella by Barlight by John Lurie. 
of the uh, lounge lizards. This um, was interesting here. Um, yeah, it um, it's this is getting more disguised, um, but the rapid bowing uh, technique it sort of makes this kind of almost like starlight quality uh, to it, you know, sort of some kind of like quasar or something sound. And then after you, you're just trying to figure out what that is, and it becomes like a country hoedown, which is kind of interesting treatment for <laughs> Stella by Starlight. Uh, and I really like the walking bass line. Uh, At the that end, they, yeah. They put in there, yeah. This one, actually, there's a sextet playing in this, so they, they brought the other two... Uh, instrumentalists in who are going to play on Verklärte Nacht. Okay. Mm. So they've kind of preloaded the Schoenberg work into this. And it's the longest movement in this work. And the middle section is slow and atmospheric with a combination of Dutille and Schoenberg style effects. Uh, halfway through, you hear the melody in the cello and then the jazzy part starts at around the five minute mark, which Russ just told you about. Um, the violin imitates a trumpet in this, by the way. Mm. Uh, this section also compares a comes as a welcome release after trying to follow all the fleeting abstract ideas in the Dussieu and in this piece before this point. Then we get to Parentes Quatre, which is uh, the ninth movement, track twenty one. This starts with an echo of Stravinsky's theme for Petrushka, da 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 da. You know that kind of tritone. I think that is. Um, that's what I heard anyway. Um, then we hear some of the intensity we'll feel in the Schoenberg. Um, tenth movement on Round Midnight. This is where the um, CD gets its name or the album. This starts with Sul Ponticello effects. Again, that's playing behind the bridge. You get those eerie, ghostly sounds. Uh, the melodic material emerges into the famous theme on violins about a minute and 45 seconds in. And then the eleventh movement, Le Verre du Jour, the sunrise. We hear the opening again in the low strings while the violins play sul ponticello figures and the strings lift upward in their patterns and fade as if they were uh, the night dissipating into day. I really enjoyed this. I thought it was very clever, the whole thing. And there are all these little kind of effects that I think um, string players would especially enjoy. Yeah, it's, it was fun. Um, I thought it was curious, though, that the the round midnight, which is, you know, sort of the theme here, is the right. most amorphous of the, the <laughs> know, songs. Right? You know, it doesn't really come out to you at all. You got to really listen into it to figure out, you know, you get some of the harmonic movements from Monk's piece, but uh, there's not a lot of the melody in there. Uh, and right. um, yeah, because the, the other ones are quite obvious, but I thought this was <laughs> kind of a veiled... Uh, it is, but you, do, it, you can yeah. make it out. But yeah, it's yeah. kind of oddly harmonized. And, mm. But again, I think that's something um, that Monk himself would have appreciated as he had yeah. a lot of odd harmonies in his dancing works around, as well. Dancing around melodies, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah very interesting and uh, clever ideas for interpretations of the these jazz standards. The thing too, though, is that Merlin it do, it doesn't come across as a pastiche. It actually comes across as a fairly uh, intellectually figured out work. I, I I was really impressed by that. There were a lot of like little musical jokes in it. Um, just I don't know about joke. Not jokes isn't the right word, but these little effects that sort of um, were, were really fascinating. Um, I, think, I thought he was really clever in this in his um, composition or the ensemble dumb. was anyway. He's able to pull in a lot of the kind of odd techniques that are introduced in the first work and then work mm -hmm. them in here 
in a different sort of uh, whereas uh, it also gives you a hint as to how the first work actually functions yeah because you're you know because there as we were saying you don't get the any melodic development it's these fleeting references so here you get those kind of uh, interesting uh, expositions of techniques and things and then you get a theme that you already know so it's, it just makes it that much uh, easier to uh, digest before you move on to something new. Uh, yeah, something so, to hold on to yeah. is really helpful in music. That's for sure. All right, and then last, we get the Schoenberg's Verklärte Nacht, Opus 4 from 1899. Now, if you're afraid of the big band Schoenberg, Big Bad Schoenberg. I was going to say it's a big band Schoenberg. That's what that would be like. Did Stan never try that? I don't know. <laughs> Wow, that's a, that's a, boy, that, sometimes the slip of the tongues, man, you just come up with these, you like, great, great ideas. Oh, that, Big Band yeah. Schoenberg, we're going to hear a recording of that next year now, because I said that. Watch the 12-tone trombones. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is um the Big Bad Schoenberg. Who's afraid of the Big Bad Schoenberg? Well, no need to be afraid of this, because this piece was written in 1899 before he had developed his 12-tone technique. So this is a highly romantic work, although it's very chromatic. So but so it's got it's kind of has this kind of overripe and rather histrionic quality to it. But it's like late romanticism uh with identifiable melodies and things like that. Um this is better known in its orchestrated version, but this is the original version. It was for a string sextet and this has now been recorded in its string sextet form quite a few times. Uh, the most famous recording of this is by the Hollywood Quartet in a mono recording back in, the, I think, the 1950s. And I think that remains the best ever recording. Although this one's pretty great, but it's not orthodox. Okay, so it's a little, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very dramatic, though. I really enjoyed this a lot. Um, the additional players, by the way, on this are Antoine Tamistit on viola, Tamistit on viola, and Nicholas Altstedt on cello. He records for Hyperion. I've heard a few of his um, recordings. So it's a sextet. Um, the whole work is played as a single movement. I hear it, or I was introduced to it anyway, as four sections. But the track list divides it into eight. And they're apparently going by like letter markings in the score. And that's really not helpful unless you have a score in front of you. So I was kind of, I thought that was a little odd. Um, I'll help you out to follow my four sections of this. Now, it was written before um, he went off, Schoenberg went off into the deep end of uh, 12-tone music. And the um, inspiration for this was a poem by Richard Damel. And uh, in order to understand this work, it's helpful to understand the poem. And I see the poem as being in in four parts as well. The first part is the introduction. Two people are walking through a bare cold wood. It's a man and a woman. And they're together romantically. Anyway, at one point, this is part two, the woman's voice speaks and she says that she's carrying someone else's child. She's in a state of sin and she feels really bad. Uh, She desperately wanted to have a baby and then uh, she had she's got pregnant with this other guy and then she found this guy, the love of her life and she's pregnant with someone else's child and she's all upset about it. And we're going to hear a lot of that in the um, histrionic uh, music writing on this. Um, the third part starts with the man talking, and he's very reassuring. And he's <laughs> this, this is actually a little nauseating, but <laughs> what he says is, "Do not, uh, don't worry about that. The um, 
the universe is shining above us and uh, the warmth we feel between us will transform the child you're carrying into my child. So it'll be our child through the magic of our love. That's horrible. How romantic, huh? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> anyway, but it was it was kind of the kind of thing that turned people on at the at the end of the 19th century. So deal with it. Anyway. And the fourth part for me would be they just go walking on more happily now. The woman is no longer upset. All right. So anyway, keep that in mind as we go through this score. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> God. Anyway. Um, the first um, track... Now, the, these are labeled with the um, speed or the tempo instructions in the score. Ser langsam is first. Um, the man and the woman are walking along the road in this, so you can imagine them here. This is very quietly played again. Wide dynamics on this whole album. Um, I enjoyed the freedom that the violins... Uh, this I noticed this right away. They have like a bird-like twittering at a minute and 30 seconds in. And usually, you don't really hear this kind of freedom in performances of this work. Uh, so I was really delighted to hear that. Um, the dynamic range is wide. It gets pretty loud. Again, don't set your volume by the beginning. All right. At 2 minutes and 54 seconds in the first track, part two, in my opinion, starts. This is where the woman's agitation begins. Now, keep in mind, when you're listening to this work, Schoenberg is not telling the story of the poem. He's um, reflecting the feelings of the people in the poem. So we're hearing the woman's agitation. Obviously, she's talking, but I think what we're hearing is what what's happening inside her, okay? As far as... um, And it gets very histrionic. Uh, she's, she kind of goes into despair towards the end of this track. And... Um, Track 25, which is labeled here as movement two. That's not, I don't think that's right, though, that these should be labeled as movements. We get a feeling of the woman's loneliness as the music quietens and slows. Uh, it's very expressive from the ensemble. They leave themselves lots of room for expression, and the tempo is pretty slow, which works very well here. The agitation comes back toward the end of this section. The next track, Breiter, um, has something hopeful but lamenting to it and we're thinking here maybe the woman is thinking of the life she's carrying in her and how wonderful it would be or her thoughts of being a mother when she was with this other guy um, a lot of the material is lyrical and moving and some would say maudlin like the poem itself uh, and then the agitation comes back at the end she's really like upset about this situation that she's found this great guy and she's pregnant with someone else's child Okay, in the fourth, in the track 27, labeled Rasha, the agitation spills over and we get a unison statement of the theme, which is very, very dramatic. Around the 22nd mark, you really can't miss it. Um, unison means like all, this, all these string instruments, all six of them are playing the same notes, although at different kind of frequencies. Um, this, that's the peak of her whole lament. Um, and then the walking on and stumbling from the poem we can hear it about 1 minute and 18 seconds. Um, track 28, this is where part 3 starts, and this is where the man starts speaking, reassuring the woman. The music is warm, bright, and rocking, like the Aurora Borealis shining on the couple. There's unexpected color already, even in the uh, the orchestration of this piece. And you can see why he would want to, uh, from this, why he would want to make this uh, an orchestral string work. 
after this. Um, the melody is very comforting and warm, and the rocking motion at 1 minute and 58 seconds, to me, represents the shining of the universe that the man mentions in the poem. Uh, the players make the score sound not as dense as it usually comes across, and that's a good thing. Uh, the orchestration is very easy to follow in this recording. Um, um, track 29, Im Zeitmas. The positive words of the man spill over into this section and develop more, well characterized by the ensemble. Track 30, Et Vas Bewegt. We're still in part three, as far as I'm concerned, and the man's transformative words continue. There's a beautiful, soothing release of tension in about one minute and 30 seconds. There are these two chords, but they don't resolve into a cadence. Uh, he's very uh, much in the Mahler school of like, or the Wagner school of letting uh, cadences uh, just not happen until <laughs> you can't stand anymore, really. <laughs> Uh, those chords repeat several times before the end of the section. They do release a lot of tension when you hear them. They're very kind of reassuring. I think just because they're being repeated so many times. And the final track, Ser Ruhig. This glitter, the glittering sky and the reassurance of the man's words come together in this last section. I hear a lot of the affection between the man and the woman in the first minute of this part. Part three is finally winding down. There's one more outburst of passion on the woman's part at 1 minute 46 seconds. Then a histrionic release of a lot of attention, but still no cadence. There's a lot of teasing uh, as far as this cadence goes. We get a lot of, you know, kind of false cadences that just continue and continue and continue until the resolution is finally heard at about 3 minutes and 35 seconds. To me, this is where part four, the conclusion starts. It's only about a minute long. Uh, it's the man and the woman walking on as the universe shines above. So like the opening, except this time you have that rocking Shining Universe um, section music playing. Uh, the ensemble does a lot to bring out the drama of this piece. It comes across as very histrionic and dramatic, but in keeping with what's in the score, this is very appropriate for this period. I like the fact that they interpreted this very difficult to play, dense score. It doesn't really sound terribly dense here. Um, no balance problems in this. And for the album in general, I thought it was intellectually stimulating. This isn't, in, and also, um, there's a lot of emotion in the last piece. It's not for everyone, I guess, but I think it should be. Keep an open mind. Don't try to relax. Enjoy it and just be <laughs> like a, be, be a better person. Listen to this. I thought it was great. Yeah, I actually enjoyed the Schoenberg, which I usually mm. can't say. But uh, well, it's uh, this an early is, work. This is, this, this is good. Um, I mean, as you say, histrionic. Uh, it it develops the themes with kind of considerable angst uh, in the playing, and they they draw that out uh, really well uh, in their phrasing. But there's also a lot of uh, contrasting sections that have a lot of tenderness and beauty uh, yeah. in the playing, especially in the. Uh, fifth movement there and then the ending is uh, you know quite lovely too I thought uh, the combination of the pizzicato and rapid bowing uh, at the end uh, in in uh, Schoenberg's uh, writing is really nice and yeah they they seem to get all the contrasts and uh, arcs of this uh, composition uh, really well done and mm -hmm. uh, so it's um, you can follow all of that and uh, as you say that he doesn't always satisfy you with the kind of harmonic um, movement that you're, you're longing for, 
It's all but, that chromaticism. It yeah. just clouds everything, you know? But it, he always ties it over into something that makes you forget that, and then you're on to the, the next thing. And, and they, they develop those things, and I feel like the phrasing and um, the sort of uh, development of everything is really continuous and ties you through uh, to the end. So you feel like you get the complete picture of uh, the work uh, so that's a really good performance. Uh, yeah, um, it's an interesting uh, combination, uh, challenging program. Uh, definitely, I think people who normally listen to challenging you know, in a good way. I want to yeah, emphasize. If you like to listen to you know string quartets uh, in general, and you want to try something a little bit uh, more interesting in terms of uh, program, uh, this is uh, something interesting to. Uh, sit down and uh, listen to uh, not as background music, but uh, very intently and see if you can figure out what's going on. Okay. So there we go. We, we, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we're, we're done with classical music and uh, I've uh, polished off quite a bit of my whiskey and I have to say my, my eyes are watering from the 59 proof, but I'm still <laughs> ready to go into the jazz here. And I'm happy about that because of the theme for this week, which is what, Russ? Well, we're going all organic this week. And yeah, we are organic. That's right. Uh, in the sense of uh, the B3. Oh, we're such fans of the Hammond B3, the Hammond aren't B3 we? Organ. The organ. That's right. This is uh, this is a an adult music, uh, you know, things we love. Okay, this would be on our things we love list. The Hammond B3 organ. So you're going to get an organic high if you listen to this music, uh, but you won't need any extra substances, only your ears. You have a I think you'll that. get a spring in your step, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just um, had these uh, organ recordings uh, going back to uh, the end of the summer, and I kept getting more, and I just couldn't <laughs> hold them back anymore. So. Right. I've, uh, I've picked up a lot of organ recordings this year because of you yeah, mostly, but yeah. but I would have picked up quite a few of them anyway. You know, that's kind I, of... And I don't know if it's just uh, that, you know, since we started this and I've been looking at everything that's coming out, that I've noticed them or if like organ is really, you know, becoming a, a thing now uh, with, uh, you know, keyboard players uh, who weren't exclusively organ players but they want to do it uh, or mm. if it's just getting uh, you know more attention but there's a lot of organ recordings there this are year, now yeah and they're really good uh, and a lot of variety there. there yeah I haven't heard a bad one really the ones, yeah. all the ones we heard were really great and I picked up quite a few of them too yeah uh, of course uh, the big one we did this year I think that we like the best is uh, It's All Your Fault uh, by Mike Ladon, Ladon yeah. uh, that uh recorded sort of at the beginning of the pandemic and came out. And if you haven't heard it, go and check out our interview uh, with uh, Mike Ladon, too. Uh, yeah, but there were others, too, that I keep going back to. There was the Brian Charette one. Yeah, Brian Charette, that's an interesting one. Uh, yeah, it was a little unusual. Yeah. And we like the uh, Delvon Lamar one a lot, too. It's kind of funky. got this funky groove. It's kind of like... If you want to mm -hmm. just get your grooves down, the Delvon yeah. Lamar, uh, that's a really great one, too. And I think, he, you know, that's coming up, you know, not really in the the pure jazz sort of genre but sort of the you know jam jam band kind of soul groove kind of thing i think he'll turn on a lot of uh sort of younger audience that maybe not uh are jazz fans yet but 
the grooves that uh, that group gets are uh, really hard to uh, not be infected by. Uh, if, if you're walking along and you hear that music, you're going to be drawn into it uh, right. with the magic of the organ. Right, the well, Hammond tonight, B3 is a soulful instrument. It sure is. Yeah. Uh, I've got uh, three and a half <laughs> releases three and a half, here. Yeah. Three and a half. Um, and we're going to start out uh, <laughs> with an interesting one uh, by uh, a man who uh, is not content to sit behind the organ. <laughs> no. Um, a fellow who I saw when I was in uh, high school. He was about the same age as me. We were at the uh, Downbeat uh, Music Fest in Chicago, and he would go on to uh, big things in music. Uh, Mr. Joey DeFrancesco. Well, while Russ would go into uh, big things in podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, other endeavors. But uh, this is called uh, More Music on the Mac Avenue uh, label. It, I don't know. Maybe it should be called More Instruments. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> what's going on here. Cause, and he's playing them all, too. It's that's amazing. The thing, he's, yeah. he, he, he's like Prince. He just plays everything. So, uh, on this album, we've got uh, Joey D, as he is affectionately called. Uh, That's actually what I wrote in my notes always, Joey. Yeah, Joey, Joey D. D. Joey D. <laughs> on organ, trumpet, which he's played before uh, on a couple, on at least one recording. Uh, I think this is the first time we're going to hear him on his latest uh, endeavor, the tenor saxophone. Right. And vocals too so he sings one yeah. track on this Joey yeah. D, uh sings too and and he also plays keyboards which is right. not the organ um yeah. i'm not to, sure so what to it make is. things confusing for listening right. to this uh in his uh, trio uh is also made up of lucas brown uh the guitarist who also plays organ right <laughs> uh when joey d is doing something else but they're both also playing uh keyboard uh which I don't know if it's a synth. Uh, they're mainly they're often using an electric piano kind of sound, right. and they're switching off between the two of them with this, and uh, <laughs> it's hard to know who's doing what uh, sometimes. But, although although say, Joey on the organ, Joey has like a very soulful sound. He's got to right. be like the most soulful organist out there. Yeah, and uh, Lucas Brown is a is a different uh, kind of approach to it, so they're easy right. to distinguish on uh, when they're on the organ. And then we've got uh, Michael Ode. I think that's what I said. It's O-D-E on mm -hmm. drums. And um, so... He's, he's, a, he's a hard hitting drummer, I have yes. to say. Especially for a jazz drummer, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it gets uh, gets a good effect with uh, the very soulful style uh, of the tunes that uh, Joey Francesco has here. So let's go through it and see if we can figure out what's going on. Uh, he, the first track is called Free... And uh, this has got uh, Joey D on trumpet and keyboard uh, with Brown soloing on the Hammond B3. So it's a swinging number. It's got this kind of alternating organ chords that build up the tension. And uh, Joey D's got a Harmon mute in his trumpet. And I like his trumpet playing. He's got uh, pretty good chops and uh, he swings really well on trumpet. And I also like the way that he phrases he he gets very long lyrical phrases you know they they go way over the bar lengths and so he's a fluid player uh and uh so he does a 
really nice uh, swinging solo here. Uh, then Brown solos on organ and, and Joey backs him on the keyboards, so electric pianos kind of sound. Um, they stick on the uh, alternating chords for a bit after the solos uh, for Ode to do some uh, drumming. And uh, then Joey pulls the mute out of the trumpet uh, back for a bit of the <laughs> melody for the ending. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's a nice tune to start out. Uh, and uh, Joey's off on his first trumpet excursion. Uh, track two is Lady G. And this is a original tune dedicated to his wife. Uh, this has got Brown on keys and organ. Uh, it's a ballad with kind of a, a rockabye bass pedal line to it. Uh, you can almost hmm. you know, get this kind of uh, sense of motion from it. Uh, there's also these kind of cool uh, Rhodes electric piano, like phaser kind of chords that pan from left to right. Uh, it's a nice effect, if, especially if you're listening on headphones. And here, now Joey's on sax. Uh, he's got a mellow and full tone. Uh, it's sometimes breathy. He has kind of a legato style attack to it. Um, I, I kind of felt like he was going for that Stan Getz sound. Yeah. And he gets out some pretty fast licks in places. Apparently, I guess he was working with like uh, Pharaoh Sanders and uh, stuff with uh, getting his He did an album out. that Pharaoh Sanders appeared yeah. on uh, a um, few years ago. But he sounds really relaxed on his sax approach. Uh, Brown, you get a sense of his uh, organ style here. It's a very smooth kind of uh, organ solo. And um, then uh, in the the mix of all this, it gets some kind of interesting uh, drum accents. It's a very pretty tune and uh, a nice uh, first setting for uh, Joey D's sax playing. Uh, track three, Just Beyond the Horizon. And uh, now Joey D's going to be on his organ as usual. Uh, so you're going to get that uh, approach that you expect from him. Uh, it's got a busy drum intro uh, into a swinging tune. Uh, and now Brown is on guitar uh, in the trio, and he takes the melody. Uh, the organ and guitar trade off for a bit on the melody uh, before a return to the guitar lead. The beat changes up. Uh, from swing to Latin uh, in uh, sections on this tune, and that always helps push the solos along when the, when it switches back and forth. Joey gets the first solo uh, with some inspired lines, uh, and then uh, Brown is up for guitar solo. Uh, he has a really uh, kind of liquid uh, flowing uh, style in his playing on his solo here. Uh, then the organ and guitar trade eights for a while, and... Uh, goes into an organ vamp and Ode gets to beat the skins over that uh, for this tune uh, just beyond the horizon uh, track four in times of reflection this one starts with a piano intro by Joey D uh, <laughs> it gets excited it sounds pretty classical sounding too yeah. it's kind of not very jazzy yeah. no it, it gets excited and then it chills out into like a medium waltz melody in unison with uh, Brown's acoustic guitar. Uh, hmm. Change the effect here. Uh, Joey switches over to Harmon muted trumpet <laughs> for a section. Uh, <laughs> then uh, Brown takes a kind of melodic and relaxed solo on the acoustic guitar. Uh, Joey takes a trumpet solo. He finds some really sweet notes, uh, weaving long collected lines, uh, gets some kind of false fingering effects in. Uh, and then why not? He takes a piano solo himself, too. 
Uh, and he shows off some uh, flourishing runs, trills, and rolling chords uh, on the piano. Right. <laughs> so he, he sounds like Chopin on the piano. Yeah. He's kind of playing these like um, yeah, these arpeggio, arpeggiated yeah. sort of uh, melodies. Very classical uh, approach. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, he's all over the place on the instruments on this tune, but uh, yeah, it's a nice one. Uh, to listen to uh, somebody five? stop him yeah somebody stop him what i don't know what he's going to do next <laughs> well he's going to sing well we'll get to that we'll get to <laughs> but, that soon um yeah. track five is uh, angel calling and uh this has got brown on organ joey's back on tenor sax uh, he starts out with some soulful rubato lines over organ swells uh and then a uh, relaxing tempo gets set by uh old uh, Joey plays the melody, uh, getting down in the low registers, and then he adds kind of a high squawk here and there. Uh, I guess that's his Pharaoh uh, Sanders influence uh, <laughs> there. Uh, overall, though, he's still kind of relaxed in his sax approach. Uh, there's an unexpected modulation that kind of lifts up, and then uh, Brown gets an organ solo. Uh, his style is quite different from Joey's, and it, he keeps it really smooth here. And then uh, Joey's back. Uh, for the melody on the sax and it kind of ends uh, abruptly at the end of the melody no uh, dragging out with holds or anything there uh, track six is called where to go and uh, they're both on organ here <laughs> uh, two organ playing uh, things here brown gets the first solo um, after an intro with organ and a little keyboard uh, then uh, we get uh, harmon muted trumpet and brown's organ playing uh, the kind of humorous melody uh, to this blues tune uh, in unison. Uh, Joey ditches the mute for his trumpet solo. Uh, he plays on and on, uh, and uh, Brown switches up to like a walking bass line uh, in the organ uh, here. Uh, change keys, another modulation, and Brown gets an organ solo. Uh, Joey switches to some keys behind and uh, Brown gets really funky uh, in his solo here. Uh, then Joey can't resist, and he comes in with an organ solo of his own. <laughs> uh, gets kind of really funky, uh, as he can do here. Sounds cool. Uh, the bass pedals groove on after that, and then it's time for Ode to play uh, drums. And there's a few kind of mysterious electric piano chords uh, thrown in uh, over the uh, drum solo before they're back to the melody uh, with a trumpet and organ. So everybody's having a good time playing lots of different instruments here. <laughs> uh, track seven, Roll With It. Uh, this is uh, in the regular trio format, so with Joey D back on organ. Uh, this is a tricky, boppish, unison melody uh, with guitar and organ here, and it's it stops and starts in different places, uh, uh, adds some tension to it. Uh, Brown is up for a solo first on guitar. He gets some cool uh, double stop uh, notes in his lines, and he's got a really compact kind of sound. And uh, Joey builds a bouncy organ solo with snappy rhythms and boppy phrases here, and he gets some real blazing lines in on the organ as well. And there's some uh, stop time chords for a little drum play before they get back to the melody. Yeah, that is uh, a hard hitting drum solo. Yes. <laughs> uh, track eight, and here it is. And if you please, uh, I guess this is a uh, cover of um, Mario Romano tune. And uh, Brown is on an organ for this tune, 
uh, that gets a smoky sex intro, and then Joey is in on the vocals. Yeah. Uh, he's got a mellow baritone kind of voice. He, he, he kind of sounds like Tony Bennett. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of caught a little bit of that Tony yeah. Bennett in there. And uh, he jumps into a sax solo right after the verse, uh, then back to the vocal, and uh, then he comes right back in on sax again, uh, and it fades to the end. Uh, well, you know, not bad. <laughs> I'm glad he only sings on one, well, two. Well, no, he's you know, he's a good singer. I mean, he's yeah. not like yeah, you know, he's he's not a he's not going to have a career as a jazz singer because he's just not as subtle as like really great jazz singers are. But I mean, he sounds good. I mean, the thing is he sings, he plays the sax, he plays the trumpet, he plays the organ. All I do is talk on a podcast and people complain about that. I I can't do anything here. Yeah. (laughs) I think these other guys, they, you know, he might, he might just cut them loose and go out on his own. You know, yeah, he he'll only be like Prince in the arms. studio by himself. Yeah. He'll just double track everything and or overlay everything into yeah. this multi-track uh, recording. I um, see that coming, by the way. There's going to be a Joey <laughs> yeah, DiFrancesco recording yeah. that goes big like band. that. <laughs> yeah, the big band. Yeah, <laughs> along with the Schoenberg big band or the Schoenberg yeah. big band. Maybe that's what yeah. it'll do. Could That'd be, be cool. Uh, next track, more music. The title track. Uh, this is also uh, in a trio. Uh, with Joey on uh, guitar or on keyboards and Brown on guitar. Uh, it's a cool intro uh, with really high organ uh, chord hits, uh, smooth guitar melody by Brown. Uh, this is one of those smooth jazz kind of driving on a sunny day, laid back grooves with a syncopated bass. It's a lot of adjectives <laughs> together, but if you uh, grew up in the 80s with that kind of like smooth jazz uh, kind of uh, was popular, it's that kind of just driving groove. You can imagine mm-hmm. the top down on some ocean kind of highway. Uh, yeah. it's a nice clean tone organ solo start with really tight uh, rhythms. Uh, and as he builds up the solo, he pull, pulls out some of the stops, uh, gets a more percussive kind of sound and different tones here. Um, Brown is next with a liquid tone solo again, and he adds some effects to it at the end. Uh, so kind of a cool grooving tune. Uh, 10 is this time around. So electric piano intro, it changes up, adding an organ to the even beat and the organ and electric piano double up on the melody. Uh, I guess that it's Brown on the electric piano, the solos first. Uh, it's one of those sounds with the kind of blown out, distorted low tones, you know, on the electric piano. Mm. You know, it sounds really, <laughs> it sounds cool. It's, it's you know, supposed to have that effect. Um, then uh, organ bass pedal lines and chords fill in the gaps uh, in there. So it's uh, really, uh, you know, funky rhythmically it's over to joey d uh, for an organ solo next and he keeps it really energized and funky as usual they get back to some unison melody and then joe joey pulls out some different organ tones to really whip things up uh until the mm-hmm. end uh, so this one uh, is energized tune and uh, then uh the final tune 11 is called soul dancing this gets a a gospely big Amen. Organ intro into a medium groove gospely soul tune. Uh, the organ and electric piano again here. Uh, Brown goes first on electric piano, 
and then Joey D goes to church on the organ on this yeah. one. Uh, he always finds just the right stop mixtures for the tunes. The, the tone always match. Uh, the tones always match exactly what's building or settling in the music, and it comes back down uh, for the melody on organ again, and then they trade off phrases until a final organ cadenza and a big finish. So more music more instruments <laughs> what could he try next i don't know it sounds like they're having a lot of fun though so um why not yeah it was a fun album i liked it a lot and i liked hearing him on all these instruments but i really want to hear him on the organ yeah yeah you know much that's why really why i listened to him and we have we yeah. got a bit of that here so that's yeah. okay so really uh, good by the way I, yeah good really i want to work. recommend to listeners um by the way joy differencesco is uh differencesco's um christmas album um He's playing organ on all of it. It's really great. Right. right. <laughs> From 2014. So check that out. Um, yeah. And I think he got, uh, did he not get a uh, Grammy nomination for the Christian for McBride? That? No, for the Christian McBride uh, big band. Joey, for uh, Wes Oliver. Yeah, that one? yeah. Yeah, well, certainly um, Christian McBride. Did. We should talk about the Grammys a little bit once we're at the end, actually, because we didn't mention that at the beginning. Yeah. We probably yeah. should have. We don't want to get too depressed uh, in the nah. middle of it. Organic high. There, there are things to complain about, but I thought the jazz. I liked a lot of the jazz picks, but you know they always pick the same. Always the same people. Artists. Right? They always have the same people. Yeah. Now here's some. They did they pick this pick. though. Oh, did they? No. No, no, no. No, no, no. This is too late for them. Okay. But they picked the Christian McBride album. That was really great. Now, the next organ, organic high. Peace. Yeah. We're going to cross the ocean to your land of your ancestors. Oh, are we? Oh, yes, we are. Okay. And make a connection. Uh, the label is WM Italy. The title is Connection. And this is by saxophonist Rosario Giuliani. Yeah. And one of the greatest trumpet players in the world, Fabrizio Bosso. Yeah. Now, here's a guy who should be winning all kinds of awards, but he's just yeah. too good. He's just better <laughs> than all of the American trumpet players. Yeah. Uh, he really is. Um, so yeah. I want to say one thing about the CD is I looked this up, and it's it's highly, highly priced. It's, it's oh, really it? expensive as a, as a physical copy. Mm. I think it's coming from Italy. Could be, yeah. Uh, yeah. Luckily, we can listen to it on streaming. Uh, right. So... Uh, Fabrizio Bosso on trumpet, Rosario Giuliani saxophone, Alberto Grisi on Hammond organ, and Marco Valeri on drums. It's a bunch of Italians, eh? It's a bunch of Italians. What, what do you do doing? about it? Uh, <laughs> and as you would expect, the first track is called Dubai. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, of course, no. Um, do you have any background on this? Do you know why they uh, called no, it that? None at all. No? Uh, no, not many album notes or anything uh, here. Yeah. So you just have to. I don't go think they would say on the album either. By my ears. Um, but uh, this is a uh, starts with a drum intro, and it's a very kind of uh, post bop type of tune with a little bit of uh, Middle Eastern flavor in the uh, scales maybe, that they choose. There it is. Maybe that's why. Dubai. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after the busy melody, it settles a bit and you will hear one of the best trumpeters in the world today for Brazil Bosso. Uh, he has more technique than like three other trumpet players uh, combined. Uh, 
Once he builds his solo up, uh, he rips through uh, lines with amazing technique and dexterity, always with a sense of humor. Uh, Giuliani is up next on tenor, and he gets some blazing lines as well. Uh, and when they break into a driving swing uh, in the middle of his solo. Jerisi uh, is next with his solo, all the while keeping a brisk bass line on the pedals. Uh, the horns are back with a snippet of the melody uh, before Valeri gets a turn on the drums here as well. Uh, so things are off to a kind of post-boppy start. I want to say uh, another thing about Bosso uh, as a trumpet player is not only does he have a great technique, but he has a great sense of what to play when. Oh, yeah. You know? That's uh, that's something really special as well. You know, he's kind of... Yeah. He always just sounds really great. Yeah. I just think... I mean, I I can't think of any trumpet player who's better than him. Um, and what I also like about him is that he's uh, very uh, competent in all styles of jazz. Uh, you know, he can... Uh, play in a swing style, and uh, he's cultivated a, an excellent plunger mute technique, uh, hmm. which you know was sort of really out of fashion with modern uh, trumpet players. Uh, but when he wants to pull that out, uh, he can uh, really do some interesting sounds with that too. Uh, track two here is called "More Than Ever," uh, and I also don't have uh, any composition notes that come with any of the materials i looked yeah. even in italian so i can't wow. give credit to these but uh, uh anyway uh this is a mid-tempo swinger uh it's got a lilting melody for unison sax and a kind of cup muted trumpet uh the sax and trumpet trade off lines uh, rather than soloing individually uh before jerisi takes a fleet organ solo uh over uh, his bass pedals that really dig in on this number. Uh, his organ tone has a sharp attack and just enough kind of distortion to the sound to be, you know, kind of cool and dirty. Um, he then outlines the chords for Valeri to get some solo fills and they get back to the melody. Uh, and Giuliani uh, ends it with some altissimo notes up in the high register. Track three is called A Winter Day. Uh, the organ swells in, and Jerisi uh, makes a perfect organ intro uh, for uh, Giuliano to introduce the melody. Uh, he trades off with Basso on the flugelhorn, and then they come in together on uh, harmonized longer notes. And uh, Giuliani and Basso both take individual turns, and uh, Fabrizio gets some cute slides into the upper register, interesting interval play and half valve smears in his solo. Uh, Gianni plays some more and then they join in on the harmonized section again before trading out on the melody. And through it all, Jerisi uh, backs with organ chords and swells uh, to match the mood. And speaking of mood, the fourth track is called yeah. Fabrizio's Mood. It's a swinging melody with sax and unison harmon muted trumpet. Jerisi takes the first solo, and Valeri mixes up the beat behind, uh, pushing him along with accents. Fabrizio is uh, up next for a solo. Some fine accented phrases here among his fast swinging lines. Uh, Giuliani swings really hard on his uh, solo here, too. And then they all trade off with the drums. Uh, five, we got a cover of a tune I've always loved, uh, Freddie Hubbard's Little Sunflower. And uh, this is, starts with a minor organ vamp, 
uh, and the horn lines slink in sexily. Uh, mm-hmm. The melody shifts to major at the end of this uh, melody. So it's got that harmonic change that you'll look forward to. Um, Gianni is first on the solos. He rips through some modes and outside playing. Uh, well, Jerisi uh, backs him uh, very nicely on the organ. Uh, Basso starts his solo gently on this tune. Uh, he gets in some upper register lines, some chromatic lines as well, and a few odes to Freddie Hubbard in his stylings uh, with some intervals like Hubbard used to use in his solos. And uh, after repeating the melody, they get some uh, trading play uh, to jam out at the end. Uh, Six is called Coffee Shop, uh, and this sounds like someone who's had uh, a few too many espressos, I think. Yeah, I thought Uh, this was a good name. (laughs) Yeah. It's a syncopated start and stop melody, uh, like a fast bop style uh, that shows off uh, Valeri's beat chops on the drums. Uh, Giuliani and Basso rip it up with fast bluesy solos and exchanges. Uh, Jerisi feeds them with huge uh, bass pedal rising lines and chords uh, before launching into his own rhythmic solo. Then they trade off with the drums. Everyone jams out before coming back to the caffeinated melody and uh, riffing out on the final line for a bit before the end. Track seven, called 74 Miles Away, and uh, you might wonder, where does that come from? Uh, listen to it. Uh, a chugging organ uh, intro brings the horns in, and they're uh, playing in a 7-4 time signature here. Uh, so I guess that's the 74 miles uh, reference. Uh, and the melody, uh, it's interesting. It's like in 7-4, but it sort of slows and restarts a few times. Uh, so it doesn't keep in the tempo. Uh, Basso solos first here. He works up into a frenzy of trills over the unusual meter. Uh, Giuliani is more laid back uh, and rhythmic at first in his solo. Uh, Then he weaves long, fast lines with other rhythmic phrases as he builds uh, a lot of nice, intense soloing on here. It's not an easy meter to play. I guess you think in your mind, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, like that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit challenging for phrasing solos. And uh, it ends with uh, track eight, Walking Around, uh, trumpet and sax on an impossibly fast head for this tune. <laughs> uh, the organ joins in, the bass pedals are running instead of walking here. Right. Uh, this is like the Stairmaster for organ pedals <laughs> uh, boss up blazes imagine through. what that must look like <laughs> <laughs> bouncing your legs up and down uh, boss up blazes through a swinging solo and then Jerisi is off to the races on his solo the horns fan the flames with some cool backing lines uh, Giuliana comes back uh, into his solo over drums only and that gives him some freedom to play some phrases outside the chords uh, and he also quotes a bit from uh, a love supreme while doing that, and uh, works that in there. Uh, they pull off the tricky head once more uh, to close it out. Uh, so, yeah, overall, uh, kind of a fun album, getting some really uh, uh, good Italian musicians together. They've all got really good chops. Uh, first, I've heard of Greasy, but I like his playing. Uh, it's kind of soulful. Mm-hmm. He's got the gritty sound. Uh, 
that gets in there. Uh, well, and I'm always uh, happy to hear uh, Fabrizio. He's doing a lot of collaborations and guest spots on albums. I'm waiting for his next uh, sort of solo release to come out. But uh, yeah. yeah, coincidentally, um, he also has a Christmas album that's well worth your time. It's called the Home. It's called the Merry Christmas Baby, Fabrizio oh. Bosso Quartet. So check that out for Christmas, and that'll put a That'll jazzify your Christmas, as will Joey DeFrancesco's album, Home for the Holidays. So yeah. two Christmas recommendations for you, too. And we'll be featuring a Fabrizio trumpet leader disc as soon as he puts something uh, out yeah, next. Yeah, great. So, um, yeah, one I, of my favorites. We're try to get him on the show, too. That'd be cool. We'll do that. Uh, I think Nathan might be able to help us out with that uh, our man on the ground in uh, Italy. Our man on the ground in Italy, uh, yeah. Yeah, he... Uh, he talked to Fabrizio uh, in, uh, I think it was when he was playing in Milan one time. Mm. So, um, yeah, that would be cool. Uh, I know that he speaks English, so. Um, and I've Fantastic. turned on a few of my American jazz friend, uh, jazz fan friends to his playing. So I hope he gets better known. Yeah. But I, I have a feeling. Yeah, hopefully that, this podcast will, that's kind of what we're yeah, doing this for. We want people listening to the music so. we really love. But uh, I think... Uh, I think a lot of the American players better watch out because uh, this guy's got some <laughs> serious chops, man. He does. Now, let's cross back over that big pond. Hey. To another guy with an Italian name. Jeez. Another Italian, but he's a New Yorker. Well, upstate oh. New York from Rochester, New York. Where, where's Joey from? He's from Philadelphia, I think, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, this organist is from Rochester, New York, a city that's put out actually quite a few uh, famous jazz musicians over the years. Hmm. And uh, that's Mr. Pat Bianchi. And he's got something to say. Uh, that's the name <laughs> of the album. Uh, actually. Something to say is the name of the album. Yes, yeah, something yeah. to say. That's the first part of the album. The second part of the title is The Music of Stevie Wonder. Yeah, and I guess it's no surprise that Stevie Wonder's music transfers really well into jazz. It's kind of yeah. jazzy as it is. You yeah, know? this is on the uh, Savant label. And uh, I watched an interview uh, with Pat, and um, you know, he was talking about the influence of you know Stevie Wonder, and he sort of puts him in the same category of uh, uh, you know, popular composers as Duke Ellington uh, would be. Uh, and I guess, you know, that's not an exaggeration, really. Certainly, if you're in the baby boomer to uh, Generation X uh, sort of a demographic, uh, you know, you couldn't escape the music of Stevie Wonder listening to the radio from the late 60s right through the 80s uh, into the 90s. Uh, you know, Stevie Wonder was a huge pop star, but also an interesting composer and uh, someone who well wrote really well-structured uh, pop songs with a lot of variety to them. and um, yeah, He's one so, of the 20th century giants, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Duke Ellington, uh, you know, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, even just great songwriters, like people like, you know, Paul Simon, who have written all these, like, great songs. I mean, he's in a totally different style, but nevertheless, right. these are songs that are just going to be covered forever. Like, you know, Joni Mitchell, I consider Stevie Wonder to be there. Yeah, absolutely he always wrote here. Yeah. really good um, melodies and also... Um, you know, the harmonic uh, sort of aspect of his pop songs were always really good and uh, well-flowing. And um, 
So one of the things he said in the interview was, uh, although they do some really interesting arrangements of the tunes and take a lot of liberties, when he was playing the melodies to them, he tried to keep the tempos uh, as close to the originals as possible and play the melodies so that, you know, you would feel like you could sing along with them. And I think uh, he does that pretty well here. Um, And so, yeah, from Rochester, New York, uh, he has a uh, Grammy nomination. I'm not sure what year that was, but he's uh, got an impressive resume. Uh, he's played with Bud Shank and uh, guitar legend who recently passed away. We mentioned uh, Pat Martino. And uh, I guess he plays uh, this uh, kind of uh, organ. Uh, it's a mag, I think it is. It's like a a uh, Hammond clone uh, organ, hmm. but it sounds, yeah, sounds just like the Hammond that I expect uh, here. I'll have to find more out uh, about that because I don't imagine it's too easy to uh, get a real Hammond B3 organ these days. Uh, I don't know. Um, well, Do if they I ever, not make them anymore? I don't think no. so. If I ever win the lottery, you know, and I don't know what to spend my money on, I'll just like, you know, have a, a additional room or buy a whole house to put a Hammond organ <laughs> <laughs> just to does, have it does it know. take up that much space i don't know well i don't know you know i yeah. want the i want to have my big leslie speaker and everything oh yeah know, just so anyway but um yeah so the music of stevie wonder of course bianchi on organ uh we've got paul ballenbach on guitar and byron landham on drums and special guest artist wayne escoffery on tenor sax and uh i know his playing uh he's a uk born uh, saxophonist, but uh, I believe he move, moved to the U.S. at a young age, and uh, I came to know him uh, as a sideman on some Tom Harrell recordings, and uh, I also have, I think, his debut as a uh, leader, too, so he's a fine up-and-coming, uh, established tenor saxophone play- player, and he adds to uh, I think it's two tunes here, uh, and we start out, uh, not all of these, I should say, are Stevie Wonder tunes that may immediately come to mind. Yeah, uh, he chose this really well. It's kind of yeah. interesting. Um, so, and one, I'm not quite sure what it is, if it is even a Stevie Wonder tune. I don't think it is. But uh, anyway, not, we start out with uh, Go Home. This is a single from it's, 1985. It's, it sounds like a Stevie Wonder song. Yeah, this one is. Yeah, yeah, okay. This is yeah. A 19, 1985 single uh, sets a nice groove with uh, rapid runs between the melodic phrases. Um, Landum does a nice job of uh, mixing up uh, different beats on this tune. I thought he uh, gets a lot of textures out of the melodies. Uh, uh, Bianchi turns out an energized solo on this one uh, while keeping uh, the bass line impossibly funky. Uh, here and uh Ballenbeck here he uses a very kind of thick rock style tone and his solo is really you know uh as a rock guitarist uh here too so uh uh yeah but you'll see he's capable of lots of different styles here his playing is very impressive here uh there's also a synthy kind of sound in the interlude section in the first part of the song and I think Bianchi's only playing uh organ so i think that's ballenbeck doing like a guitar kind of synth effect here too uh it's kind of a complex composition of this tune uh 
but uh, it makes a good first impression of what they're going to do with the arrangements of these tunes. I just want to say about this one tune, though, the electric guitar solo was really screaming and fantastic, but it faded out at the end when he was really taken yeah. off. He was like, yeah, what yeah. was that? I wanted to hear the rest of that solo. Yeah. He was really know. burning. Uh, yeah. And I thought, oh, this is going to be like a lot of rock guitar on here. But um, no, there's a lot of interesting uh, variety in the guitar on this recording. Uh, track two, uh, Until You Come Back to Me, uh, parentheses, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, this one is a Stevie Wonder tune. I think he has co-writers, uh, Morris Brodnix and Clarence Paul. Uh, it was originally recorded by Stevie Wonder in 1967, uh, but it wasn't released as a single, uh, and it didn't appear on an album until uh, 1977's uh, anthology album, Looking Back. Uh, the best-known version of the tune is actually by Aretha Franklin in uh, 1973, mm. and she had a top-ten hit with it. Uh, it's a ballad. Uh, with a nice uh, switch here after that rocking guitar solo by uh, Ballin back to acoustic guitar. And uh, Bianchi fills and swells around the more delicate uh, sound of the acoustic, but he never overpowers that. It's he's gets really nice dynamics. Uh, it gets a little sparse for Bianchi to start his solo uh, with kind of spaced articulation first and then more flowing lines. Uh, Another tune that Landham shows he's a really good backing drummer on. He mixes up the accents in interesting ways to push a soloist. And Ballenbeck takes a short solo on guitar before returning to the melody as well here. So uh, very different kind of mood uh, compared to the first track. Uh, three, we're going to go for one of the big hits everyone knows, uh, Superstition from 1972's uh, Talking book album a very cool organ riff to start this one off it's got a hesitant kind of rhythmic beginning some cool guitar synth backing and then Escoffery joins in with the melody on tenor and they give it a medium slow swing tempo not a rock approach as you might expect uh, Escoffery solos with bluesy ideas and a big fat sound Bianchi's solo is full of really fast lines and intensity and Ballenbeck gets just enough distortion for a dirty sound with a lot of sustain and a cool rocking solo on this tune as well. Bianchi goes around the opening riff for a bit for Landham to get some drum play in before Escoffery comes back with the melodies. So it's an interesting arrangement and yeah. easily to recognize the melody. Yeah, it's easy to recognize the melody, but the thing is, to me, this song is immediately recognizable by its funky keyboard kind of figure. Right. You know, and they don't do that. No, they I was don't kind do of surprised it. by that. I was mm -hmm. kind of like, wow. Anyway, but yeah, the melody is easily identifiable, yeah. so you know what it is. Yeah, they don't give you what you expect the most, which is kind right. of cool. Yeah, I like that. Four is not Blue Moon, but actually Moon Blue. Hmm. And this is from the 2005 Stevie Wonder album, A Time to Love. There's a nice cascading alternating chord uh, opening. On the organ, uh, Bianchi gets snuggled up to the melody right away, giving a lyrical effect to the phrasing. Ballenbeck is backing on chords on acoustic guitar, and then he comes in to take over the melody midway through. Bianchi finds all the sweet harmonic spots in the chords in his solo on this tune, 
also the right spots to insert some bluesy phrases. He's really fleet and fast with his 16th note lines. He has really good <laughs> facility yeah. running up and down the keyboard on this whole album. Uh, he's really fast and uh, impressed me a lot here. Ballenbeck plays a more relaxed solo here with nice articulation and tone on the acoustic guitar. And at the end, uh, Bianchi shows some nice Leslie effects on the chords, uh, getting that swirling sound coming around. Uh, so another good arrangement here. One thing I notice about Stevie Wonders, too, is he's one of those songwriters who, like, every song he writes is really positive. You know, he's he never writes anything he doesn't have any downers, critical no. or anything. Yeah, no. he's kind of all happy and lift yourselves up and we're going to help the world kind of yeah, I mean, it's really fantastic you need more people like that isn't she lovely I just called to yeah. say I love you yeah oh, it's almost too happy yeah you are the sunshine of my life yeah <laughs> I don't know yeah. I don't know maybe because he can't see everybody else's sour <laughs> he stays so happy. I don't know. I don't know. I think he's very, but no, I think he's. I think that's a conscious choice of his. I think he's yeah. really, he's really positive. I like that about him. Well, uh, that positive one, number five, isn't she Speaking lovely? Of which, right? <laughs> yeah, nineteen seventy-six album, songs in the key of life. This one is given an infectious shuffle beat for this hit tune. Bianchi plays the melody so that you can sing along easily. And Ballenbeck is more jazzy here with a different uh, electric guitar kind of tone. It's clear. He swings really hard with a lot of melodic ideas uh, in his solo. Bianchi uses a straight tone on his solo at the beginning here and adds tension with harmonized notes and trills in his lines. Uh, he gets the high hold soloing uh or rather the high notes held and then solos below them, which always sounds really cool on the organ. Get that sustain up on the top. Uh, then he changes the stops and he adds some Leslie uh, tones for some different effects in the second half of his solo. Uh, he rolls it straight into a brief melody restatement right out of the solo that keeps the intensity and momentum to the end of the tune. Uh, six is a tune I've always liked, uh, If It's Magic. Uh, this is also from Songs in the Key of Life, 1976. This one features acoustic guitar at the beginning with some overtones that lead to a really pretty solo acoustic introduction. Then the organ and guitar join in for a gentle 6-8 rhythm. Bianchi starts it out in the warm lower register of the organ and his solo works up into racing lines and ends in a great swell to hand off to Ballenbeck's acoustic solo that includes a lot of interesting melodic and rhythmic ideas. Then Bianchi comes back on the bridge into the melody and Ballenbeck adds some overtones to remind you of the beginning just before they close it out. A very nice arrangement of a pretty tune. Seven, something to say from the title. This is from the 1970 album Signed, Sealed and Delivered. Escoffery is back here to carry the melody over the swinging beat. Bianchi fills the breaks with some blazing lines into his solo, and Landum turns on the cymbals right there to drive it along. Ballenbeck chops out tasty chords on electric behind Bianchi's lines, and Escoffery gets to solo. Here, he includes a lot of fast 16th note fluid lines in his solo. Uh, Ballenbeck's in more jazzy mode here, and he gives a really fluid and laid-back solo. This guy's a really good guitarist. He can do, like, burning rock 
guitar solos, nice acoustic work, and also a, a completely, you know, unique uh, jazz guitar approach too. So he's a very versatile player. Track eight, Just Callin'. This is the one I'm not so sure. It's, uh, you know, we think just called to say I love you. Maybe, yeah. That's not that's this fast. tune. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just think this might be a, a tribute or something, but not a Stevie Wonder tune, because uh, I can't think of or find any reference to it. Uh, but it's a cool tune. Uh, it starts with really fast unison melody lines between guitar and organ. Land him solos first and show some real speed here while he keeps his fluid style. Uh, and listen to how everyone locks in with the drum, guitar, organ in perfect sync. Uh, this is a really tight trio. Bianchi's on fire with runs and trills in his solo here. And all the while, he keeps up these super fast bass lines uh, mm-hmm. behind that. Uh, it's really off to the races here. Uh, Landham hits all the fills and kicks to encourage his solo. And then he gets some uh, more fills uh, between the return to the riff and unison melody. Uh, so it's a cool tune. I just don't think this is a Stevie Wonder tune. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but where does this come from? Uh, if anyone has this album in the notes, it'd be cool to know. And the final one, track nine, Ribbon in the Sky from the 1982 album Original Musicquarium. Cool word. Oh, yeah. Musicquarium. I remember that. I thought this was a single, actually. It's, it's from the album, huh? Yes, from the album. Probably okay. was released as a single, too. This one starts with uh, snaking organ lines uh, into chords with a dark tone over a really deep bass pedal. Uh, and it brings in uh, the short uh, solo organ feature. This is just organ alone here. So it's just a little over two minutes long. Bianchi plays a really funky bass line once he gets uh, the tune going. There's some staccato and smooth chords mixed up behind the melody to give it some variety. Uh, just when it gets going and sounds so cool, he fades it out. <laughs> you want to just uh, hear it. That, that keep drives going. me crazy, yeah. man. You, yeah. you hear that also on the first track. That's just those, that, just those two things just drove me crazy about this album. Yeah, in a bad way. Otherwise, I really liked it a lot. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, um, Bianchi's organ playing is really awesome. Uh, he's got great, you know, technique, but he also has a really good concept of the sounds of the organ and where to use the variety in just the right spots. Uh, I, I really feel like you know, he gets the most out of this instrument. And here, I think he's done something uh, really interesting. As you said, these Stevie Wonder tunes kind of lend themselves to jazz, but he doesn't take the always obvious funky approach to them. Uh, he mixes them up like say he doesn't give you what you might expect with superstition uh, he turns some of the other tunes into swing without you even uh, noticing it at the same time as getting a lot of variety and some unexpected approaches to the arrangements the melodies always come through really clear and so anyone who knows stevie wonder's tunes will recognize them uh, right away uh, so i think he does a good job balancing this sort of a creative arrangement and sort of launching pad of tunes into something original and satisfying you with the melodies that are so familiar because that's what I think at the end of the day, that's what made Stevie Wonder's 
music really great was these memorable melodies and uh, uplifting mm. themes in there. So, yeah, interesting yeah, not, approach. Not only that, they're real songs too. I mean, they have complicated yeah. chords in them and you know chord yeah. progression. It's it, the, the kind of things that were were normal in great songwriting of the time. We don't really hear this anymore, unless he's doing it, I guess. But you know, yeah. So, um, yeah, nice project and. Uh, yeah, really good uh, unit too. I was in, really impressed by Ballenbeck's guitar uh, virtuosity and uh, flexibility to do lots of things. And um, <laughs> is that it? No. What? The audience Stop. wants an encore? What is that? Well, okay. What do you think, Russ? You want to give him an encore? We just, uh, <laughs> there was one more, one more thing for organ and uh i thought well why not we'll just tack this yeah, on this was pretty cool too this i really enjoyed cool. hearing this in fact yeah and uh it's not the uh dirty dozen but rather half of that it's the filthy six the filthy six filthy is such like a british word too yes. so is, i tagged them as british right away right and uh well to tag them more as british the title of the yeah EP, this is a four-tune release, is called Soho Filth. There you go. And uh, so their uh, name comes from being formed in a uh, dingy Soho basement 20 years ago. And uh, they wanted to play classic soul jazz tunes uh, with good grooves, as uh, exemplified in the great uh, Blue Note recordings of soul jazz and so they worked around uh, London's Soho, uh, playing in jazz and R&B clubs, uh, and uh, eventually moved on to uh, other kind of uh, higher level establishments. And so they've been doing this uh, focus on kind of soul jazz type things for 20 years. They've got a few 20 years, out. really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, so this is their latest EP. Uh, Soho hmm. Filth, and this was recorded at uh, uh, Dean Street Studios. And uh, this group features, I guess, the leader, uh, Nick Etwell on trumpet, Mark Brown tenor saxophone, James Fenn on guitar. Now, I believe <laughs> on the organ here is uh, Andrew Noble, but I, looking through their uh, material, they have some upcoming performances. I think they have someone named Pete Whitaker listed as organ. So I don't know if they've made personnel changes or it's just for the live dates, but I'm pretty sure here it's Andrew Noble. Uh, Daniel Drury on bass, Simon Lea on drums, and Mark Snowboy Cutgrove on congas. <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you, what do you suppose he got that nickname? Oh no, Snowboy. <laughs> like, oh, well, certain things come to mind. Let me say. Right. <laughs> um, so we uh, start out with uh, a tune called "Mr. Schmingle Bangle," and mm. uh, this is supposedly inspired by uh, the music of Cannonball Adderley, uh, great soul jazz. Uh, well, not only that, uh, everything from bebop and mm -hmm. soul jazz uh, altophone saxophonist uh, alto saxophonist this is a happy melody here uh, that's introduced in the trumpet and sax over a samba beat uh, so the conga that uh, Snowboy has going here uh, adds to that <laughs> but it's one of those tunes that changes up to swing so it goes from samba to swing and back again and if you listen to the switch in the bass line you'll pick 
that up. It's really cool. Uh, you know, go into the walking bass. You know, so that's always cool. So Atwell's up first on trumpet. Uh, he plays uh, melodic and uh, fluid lines, but they have nice accents uh, over both the Latin and uh, swing sections. Uh, some nice trumpet playing. Uh, Fenn is up next on guitar. Uh, and he sambas and swings also with some smooth lines and some cool moving fast triplet figures. And then uh, the organ comes in and churns chords uh, behind them, keeps the mood uh, really bright. So it's a kind of uplifting, fun rhythmic tune to start things out. Uh, track two is called Swapsies. It's a very British sounding <laughs> name. Uh, right. It's a kind of drum beat groove intro. Add funky guitar add organ mm. add horn riffs and add cool breaks <laughs> yeah. just the re perfect recipe for some organ grooving uh soulful tune uh and the i guess the swaps the idea is it's just uh this based on a kind of alternating chord pattern uh that does build up to a cadence but it's that two chord kind of gets in this hypnotic thing uh here uh, Brown is up first for a dirty tenor sax solo, or should I say filthy, uh, in a good way. Nobles comes up next on organ. Uh, he turns out some bluesy lines, choppy chords, some trills, just what you need on a tune like this. And Fenn gets a bluesy guitar solo, and he mix up some chords and bends in his lines for good taste. So fun tune here as well. Three is called In Time. It's an interesting tune. It's kind of a minor blues tune with some interesting harmonies. And it's got an uh, eight-beat feel spreading out the beat with these uh, cool syncopated bass lines. Um, Fenn has a really groovy guitar solo here. And he gets some psychedelic type of uh, bends and ideas in as well. And the organ is sort of purring along in the background, uh, just waiting to erupt on something. Etwell gets an extended trumpet solo here too, and the focus is on uh, kind of rhythmic ideas uh, yeah. throughout. And then uh, Noble finally gets some organ time. He starts out with a really straight tone before he gets some more shimmer uh, into it, and then he really jams out with some intense lines uh, as he goes through it. And then the horns uh, trade phrases while they vamp out to the end. It's a very cool tune. And the short set of recordings here finishes with the swagger junkie uh, i guess this is supposed to uh, be about the types of uh people that you can see walking around in uh, soho it's a fun it's not about that snowball guy anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah. the fun uh, syncopated groove this is uh reminds me of a lee morgan 60s kind of blue note tune that he would always have one of these kind of uh, uh fun kind of melodies uh, with a syncopated groove on his uh, releases at that time. And it has this cool kind of rising climax line uh, before the turnaround. Uh, and Etwell sounds really inspired on his trumpet solo here, and he gets in some Morgan-like licks uh, over the rhythmic phrases here. Brown is next on tenor sax. He also keeps it funky. And then Noble gets an organ romp. Lots of rhythmic licks and some screaming lines in the upper register, too. <laughs> uh, he gets some more jamming, too, at the end over the horn lines. Uh, so it's a really good 60s groove style, funky fun, 
Uh, all these tunes are cool. They're just that really pleasing kind of uh, soul yeah. jazz, uh, funky things. I bet these guys would be a blast to see uh, yeah. live. Uh, it would be a really good night of music. And uh, Yeah, if you're listening, Filthy Six, come to uh, Japan. We'll, yeah. we'll come and hear you. I think they've got, they're on tour now, and I think they're they've gone international. I think they're okay. going in the States. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd love to yeah. go see these guys. Uh, yeah. Other great. other other groups they reminded me a little bit about you know, they, you know they're um channeling like a lot of these 60s um funk groups but there are other bands doing this too in America like right. they, they made me think a little bit of Lettuce L E T T U C E Lettuce uh-huh. from Boston and Snarky Puppy to an extent but they do something a little different right um, but they're all groove oriented you know groups like this and I, I like this I like this kind of thing this is really an enjoyable night out so yeah, yeah this is worth, a kind worth, of very much worth a listen this is great this is I the like kind of jazz I think you know it's very accessible. Anyone would like this because it's very rhythmic. Uh, yeah. It's got the... You know, the Played appeal, at a party, everybody would be into it, you know? Yeah, the appeal of uh, the horn lines, really good rhythms, uh, and that cool organ sound. Yeah, it's a good it's a good genre to mine. You're never going to run out of cool things to do with this <laughs> sort of arrangement. So. Right. Well, there you have it. There's your organic high. Enough organ releases to... Uh, Keep you yeah. held over. Is that what we're calling the episode? Organic High? Oh, that would be pretty good. Organic something? We're going to call it, I don't know. Organic, organic High is a good name, I think. Organic High, I like that. that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sort of has lots of uh, possible interpretations. I sleep better when we have a name. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> wake up in the morning, oh, there's all this anxiety. you got to mm. come up with a name. Um, yeah, what else do we have? we got a, a mix of things. We've got British projects and melancholy things today mm. yeah go for the organ the organ is the main kind of thing on this I think yeah I guess so yeah we start out melancholy and then we get high yeah yeah not a bad way to end yeah well before we sign off did you want to say anything about the Grammys or do we I don't know well the classical Grammys I'm thinking last year we did a thing on the classical Grammys and it was really rough because there are eight yeah. categories one of them is opera and I there was no way I was going to listen to five operas in the in the amount of time uh, required not to mention you, you know because you're listening to an opera and you want to review it you need the libretto especially if you've never heard the opera before you know because they, they often nominate operas that aren't really well known um, I was just so unimpressed by the classical uh, picks this year. I thought there were mm. that a lot of the recordings that we covered on this um, podcast were a lot better than uh, the stuff that's been uh, nominated. Although a lot of it I haven't heard, but I kind of, you know, there are always surprises. Though last year we heard the uh, Theophanidis um, concertos, and we thought that was really great. Right. So there might be something in there somewhere, and I'll, I guess I'll dig through it. But I don't, I don't really want to do an episode on it this year. But yeah. how about the jazz? What do you think? I mean, I liked a lot of the recordings, but again, you can predict who they're going to nominate. They're always the same people. It's always the same people. It's yeah. always very American centric, too. Uh, yeah, you know, it, and um, that's that's an issue. That it's not as much an issue with jazz because jazz being an American form, even though it's gone international. Yeah, but classical music is its center is Europe, and it still is. Yeah, and there's there and. To have like all these like American recordings only, you know, it seems yeah. really crazy to me because a lot. I think a lot of the best music is still coming out of Europe. Yeah, I in classical would, music. I certainly would like to see more variety of artists, uh, mm. and uh, you know, the same names year after year it does get kind of tiring. 
Um, we we were kind of hoping for a, a Mike Ladon nomination. Yeah. He didn't get one. I was kind of disappointed by that. I thought that was a unique album. I think, yeah, yeah we'll get I him on really the uh, pulling for that one. But uh, yeah, well, you know, we won't we won't uh, put too much effort into it this year, other than to contrast what we think are uh, the more rewarding listening experiences. Uh, We'll be giving those, you our so. uh, picks of the year from the things we've covered um, on the last uh, Sunday of the year. That'll be the uh, 26th, 27th, whenever you get this podcast yeah, of December. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I guess next week we'll have our uh, regular episode, and then the following week we'll do our Christmas episode. We've got a Christmas episode coming up. Going to recommend you some yeah. uh, Christmas recordings. Yeah. In the meantime, start listening to Fabrizio Bossol's Christmas album, um, Merry Christmas Baby. And yeah. Joey DeFrancesco's uh, Christmas album, Home for the Holidays. They're both fantastic. Yeah. And you yeah. can pull out the old uh, Jimmy Smith. Uh, oh, yeah. Cooking Christmas. Is that it? Maybe. Yeah. Cooking, it's, it. It had, or Christmas Cooking cookin or something. I can't cooking, remember. Something like that. Yeah. yeah can't go wrong with that one. It. They've can't got go big band and organ. So um, you can start with those. And um, I just yeah. can't. I, I can't start yet because I'll get burnt out on Christmas tunes too soon. So right. you have to wait Let, two weeks for our list. So we're going to cover like recent, you know, like new Christmas albums from this yeah. year. But That's I want right. to recommend two more jazz ones that I really love um, mm. from recent years. One of them is Holidays and Holly Nights by the Lawrence Juber Trio. He's a guitarist. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, Carney I know that That's excellent. I love, that's on my list every year. And uh, Christmas Tidings by Pittsburgh-based pianist Rick Gallagher, which I love too. Oh, I, think, nice I think I have Christmas that one album. too. I borrowed that one. Yeah, you have that ones. one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, those, yeah, are, those good. are two that are on my list every year, so I recommend those four that I mentioned are, as instrumental ones. Um, and of course, the Diana Krall one is always fantastic too, um, mm. called uh, Christmas Songs. And then there's a new one I think we're going to get to this year. I'm not going to mention it yet. We'll wait. Yeah, I've got a few. <laughs> I've, we've yeah. dredged up a few, you know, they come, they start coming out in October and I don't want to listen to them yet. I just put them <laughs> on the <know>. list. <laughs> well, but one of them I had to hear because I like the artist so much. Yeah. So I heard it. I've already heard it a few times. So I'm a bit like that. See, my Christmas starts earlier than yours. I start okay. after November 22nd because that's okay. St. Cecilia's day. And I feel like after that, the festivities start. So I, I, yeah, I do a go. sort of, you know, two-tiered approach after Thanksgiving I can right. I listen to one or two and once December comes in then I'll be able to listen to them you know so although we are recording on uh, November 28th and this is the first Sunday of Advent so the Christmas season oh. has started officially that's right yeah officially yeah so that's what's yeah. coming up but we'll get one more episode of recent releases in before we get to something outside of the normal schedule of Yeah, no problem. Programs. It'll still be new recordings, though. Yeah, it'll so still be new recordings. That's right. Yeah, so. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to go for something that came out in December last year, but there'll be other things from this year, too. So. Oh, well, <laughs> it's like, you know, what are you going to do? You can, only <laughs> right. listen to, you can only listen to these kind of recordings for uh, a little bit yeah. of time. And then yeah, if you miss it, you, you yeah. got to go, you got to wait till next wait year till to next talk year. about it. That's right. Yeah. All right. So lots of good things coming up before the end of the year here on Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This has been episode 39. Oh, we're almost at 40. Just almost next 40. week, huh? Next week Boy. will be that big 40. That's wow. right. Yeah. So uh, 
We'll be around next week. Again, uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and uh, contact us if you have any questions, comments at Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll be back again with episode 40 and six new recent releases next week. Mm-hmm.